Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 18 of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 18. Lady Dedlock. It was not so easy as it had appeared at first to arrange for Richard's making a trial of Mr. Kenge's office. Richard himself was the chief impediment. As soon as he had it in his power to leave Mr. Badger at any moment, he began to doubt whether he wanted to leave him at all. He didn't know, he said, really. It wasn't a bad profession. He couldn't assert that he disliked it. Perhaps he liked it as well as he liked any other. Suppose he gave it one more chance. Upon that, he shut himself up for a few weeks with some books, and some bones, and seemed to acquire a considerable fund of information with great rapidity. His fervour, after lasting about a month, began to cool, and when it was quite cooled, began to grow warm again. His vacillations between law and medicine lasted so long that midsummer arrived before he finally separated from Mr. Badger, and entered on an experimental course of Messrs. Kenge and Carboy. For all his waywardness, he took great credit to himself as being determined to be in earnest, this time, and he was so good-natured throughout, and in such high spirits, and so fond of Ada, that it was very difficult indeed to be otherwise than pleased with him. As to Mr. Jarndyce, who I may mention, found the wind much given during this period to stick in the east. As to Mr. Jarndyce, Richard would say to me, he is the finest fellow in the world, Esther. I must be particularly careful, if it were only for his satisfaction, to take myself well to task, and have a regular wind-up of this business now." The idea of his taking himself well to task, with that laughing face, and the heedless manner, and with the fancy that everything could catch and nothing could hold, was ludicrously anomalous. However, he told us between whiles that he was doing it to such an extent that he wondered his hair didn't turn grey. His regular wind-up of the business was, as I have said, that he went to Mr. Kenge's about midsummer to try how he liked it. All this time he was, in money affairs, what I have described him in a former illustration—generous, profuse, wildly careless, but fully persuaded that he was rather calculating and prudent. I happened to say to Ada, in his presence, half jestingly, half seriously, about the time of his going to Mr. Kenge's that he needed to have Fortunatus' purse. He made so light of money, which he answered in his way, "'My jewel of a dear cousin, you hear this old woman? Why does she say that? Because I gave eight pounds odd, or whatever it was, for a certain neat waistcoat and buttons a few days ago? Now, if I had stayed at Badger's, I should have been obliged to spend twelve pounds at a blow for some heart-breaking lecture fees. So I make four pounds in a lump by the transaction." It was a question much discussed between him and my guardian what arrangements should be made for his living in London while he experimented on the law, for we had long since gone back to Bleak House, 
and it was too far off to admit of his coming there oftener than once a week. My guardian told me that if Richard were to settle down at Mr. Kenge's, he would take some apartments or chambers, where we too could occasionally stay for a few days at a time. "'But, little woman,' he added, rubbing his head very significantly, "'he hasn't settled down there yet.' The discussions ended in our hiring for him, by the month, a neat little furnished lodging in a quiet old house near Queen Square. He immediately began to spend all the money he had in buying the oddest little ornaments and luxuries for his lodging, and so often as Ada and I dissuaded him from making any purchase that he had in contemplation, which was particularly unnecessary and expensive, he took credit for what it would have cost, and made out that to spend anything less on something else was to save the difference. While these affairs were in abeyance, our visit to Mr. Boythorn's was postponed. At length, Richard having taken possession of his lodging, there was nothing to prevent our departure. He could have gone with us at that time of the year very well, but he was in the full novelty of his new position, and was making most energetic attempts to unravel the mysteries of the fatal suit. Consequently, we went without him, and my darling was delighted to praise him for being so busy. We made a pleasant journey down into Lincolnshire by the coach, and had an entertaining companion in Mr. Skimpole. His furniture had been all cleared off, it appeared, by the person who took possession of it on his blue-eyed daughter's birthday, but he seemed quite relieved to think that it was gone. Chairs and table, he said, were wearisome objects. They were monotonous ideas. They had no variety of expression. They looked you out of countenance, and you looked them out of countenance. How pleasant, then, to be bound to no particular chairs and tables, but to sport like a butterfly among all the furniture and hire, and to flit from rosewood to mahogany, and from mahogany to walnut, and from this shape to that, as the humour took one. "'The oddity of the thing is,' said Mr. Skimpole, with a quickened sense of the ludicrous, "'that my chairs and tables were not paid for.' and yet my landlord walks off with them as composedly as possible. Now that seems droll. There is something grotesque in it. The chair and table merchant never engaged to pay my landlord my rent. Why should my landlord quarrel with him? If I have a pimple on my nose which is disagreeable to my landlord's peculiar ideas of beauty, my landlord has no business to scratch my chair and table merchant's nose, which has no pimple on it. His reasoning seems defective. "'Well,' said my guardian good-humouredly, "'it's pretty clear that whoever became security for those chairs and tables will have to pay for them.' "'Exactly,' returned Mr. Skimpole. "'That's the crowning point of unreason in the business,' I said to my landlord. "'My good man, you are not aware that my excellent friend John Nice will have to pay for those things that you are sweeping off.' in that indelicate manner, have you no consideration for his property? He hadn't the least. And refused all proposals, said my guardian. Refused all proposals, returned Mr. Skimpole. I made him business proposals. I had him into my room. I said, you are a man of business, I believe. He replied, I am. Very well, said I. Now let us be businesslike. Here is an inkstand. Here are pens and paper. Here are wafers. What do you want? 
i have occupied your house for a considerable period i believe to our mutual satisfaction until this unpleasant misunderstanding arose let us be at once friendly and business-like what do you want in reply to this he made use of the figurative expression which has something eastern about it that he had never seen the colour of my money my amiable friend said i i never have any money i never know anything about money well sir said he what do you offer if i give you time my good fellow said i i have no idea of time but you say you are a man of business and whatever you can suggest to be done in a business-like way with pen and ink and paper and wafers i am ready to do don't pay yourself at another man's expense which is foolish but be business-like however he wouldn't be and there was an end of it if these were some of the inconveniences of mrs skimpole's childhood it assuredly possessed its advantages too on the journey he had a very good appetite for such refreshment as came in our way including a basket of choice hothouse peaches but never thought of paying for anything so when the coachman came round for his fee he presently asked him what he considered a very good fee indeed now a liberal one and on his replying half a crown for a single passenger said it was little enough too all things considered and left mr jarndyce to give it to him it was delightful weather the green corn waved so beautifully the larks sang so joyfully the hedges were so full of wild flowers the trees were so thickly out in leaf the bean-fields with the light wind blowing over them filled the air with such a delicious fragrance late in the afternoon we came to the market-town where we were to alight from the coach a dull little town with a church spire and a market-place and a market-cross and one intensely sunny street and a pond with an old horse cooling his legs in it and a very few men sleepily lying and standing about in narrow little bits of shade after the rustling of the leaves and the waving of the corn all along the road it looked as still as hot as motionless a little town as england could produce at the inn we found mr boythorn on horseback waiting with an open carriage to take us to his house which is a few miles off he was overjoyed to see us and dismounted with great alacrity by heaven said he after giving us a courteous greeting this is a most infamous coach it is the flagrant example of an abominable public vehicle that ever encumbered the face of the earth it is twenty-five minutes after its time this afternoon the coachman ought to be put to death is he after his time said mr skimpole to whom he happened to address himself you know my infirmity twenty-five minutes twenty-six minutes replied mr boythorn referring to his watch with two ladies in the coach the scoundrel has deliberately delayed his arrival six-and-twenty minutes deliberately it is impossible that it be accidental but his father and his uncle were the most profligate coachmen that ever sat upon a box while he said this in tones of the greatest indignation he handed us into the little phaeton with the utmost gentleness and was all smiles and pleasure i'm sorry ladies he said standing bareheaded at the carriage door when all was ready that i am obliged to conduct you 
nearly two miles out of the way. But our direct road lies through Sir Lester Dedlock's park, and in that fellow's property I have sworn never to set foot of mine, or horse's foot of mine, pending the present relations between us, while I breathe the breath of life. And here, catching my guardian's eye, he broke into one of his tremendous laughs, which seemed to shake even the motionless little market-town. "'Are the deadlocks down here, Lawrence?' said my guardian as we drove along, and Mr. Boythorn trotted on the green turf by the roadside. "'Sir Arrogant Numskull is here,' replied Mr. Boythorn. <laughs> "'Sir Arrogant is here, and I am glad to say has been laid by the heels here.' "'My lady,' in naming whom he always made a courtly gesture, as if particularly to exclude her from any part in the quarrel, "'is expected, I believe, daily. I am not in the least surprised that she postpones her appearance as long as possible. Whatever can have induced that transcendent woman to marry that effigy and figurehead of a baronet?' is one of the most impenetrable mysteries that ever baffled human inquiry. <laughs> I suppose, said my guardian, laughing, we may set foot in the park while we are here. The prohibition does not extend to us, does it? "'I can lay no prohibition on my guests,' he said, bending his head to Ada and me with the smiling politeness which sat so gracefully upon him, "'except in the matter of their departure. I am only sorry that I cannot have the happiness of being their escort about Chesney Wold, which is a very fine place. But by the light of this summer day, John Dice, if you call upon the owner while you stay with me—' "'You are likely to have but a cool reception. "'He carries himself like an eight-day clock at all times, "'like one of a race of eight-day clocks in gorgeous cases "'that never go and never went. <laughs> ah, "'But he will have some extra stiffness, I can promise you, "'for the friends of his friend and neighbour, Boythorn.' "'I shall not put him to the proof,' said my guardian. "'He is as indifferent to the honour of knowing me, I dare say, as I am to the honour of knowing him. The air of the grounds, and perhaps such a view of the house as any other sightseer might get, are quite enough for me.' "'Well,' said Mr. Boythorn, "'I am glad of it on the whole. It's in better keeping.' I am looked upon about here as a second Ajax, defying the lightning. <laughs> ah, when I go into our little church on a Sunday, a considerable part of the inconsiderable congregation expect to see me drop, scorched and withered, on the pavement, under the deadlock displeasure. <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubt he is surprised that I don't. 
for he is by heaven the most self-satisfied and the shallowest and the most coxcomical and utterly brainless ass our coming to the ridge of a hill we had been ascending enabled our friend to point out chesney wold itself and diverted his attention from its master it was a picturesque old house in a fine park richly wooded among the trees and not far from the residence he pointed out the spire of the little church of which he had spoken oh the solemn woods over which the light and shadow travelled swiftly as if heavenly wings were sweeping on benignant errands through the summer air the smooth green slopes the glittering water the garden where the flowers were so symmetrically arranged in clusters of the richest colours how beautiful they looked the house with gable and chimney and tower and turret and dark doorway and broad terrace walk twining among the balustrades of which and lying heaped upon the vases there was one great flush of roses seemed scarcely real in its light solidity and in the serene and peaceful hush that rested on all around it to ada and me that above all appeared the pervading influence on everything house garden terrace green slopes water old oaks fern moss woods again and far away across the openings in the prospect to the distance lying wide before us with a purple bloom upon it there seemed to be such undisturbed repose when we came into the little village and passed a small inn with the sign of the deadlock arms swinging over the road in front mr boythorn interchanged greetings with a young gentleman sitting on a bench outside the inn door who had some fishing-tackle lying beside him. "'That's the housekeeper's grandson, Mr. Rouncewell, by name,' said he. "'And he is in love with a pretty girl up at the house. Lady Dedlock has taken a fancy to the pretty girl, and is going to keep her about her own fair person, an honour which my young friend himself does not at all appreciate. However, he can't marry just yet, even if his rosebud were willing, so he is fain to make the best of it. In the meanwhile, he comes here pretty often for a day or two at a time to fish. <laughs> Are he and the pretty girl engaged, Mr. Boythorn? asked Ada. Why, my dear Miss Clare, he returned, I think they may perhaps understand each other, but you will see them soon, I dare say, and I must learn from you on such a point, not you, from me. Ada blushed, and Mr. Boythorn, trotting forward on his comely grey horse, dismounted at his own door, and stood ready with extended arm and uncovered head to welcome us when we arrived. He lived in a pretty house, formerly the parsonage house, with a lawn in front, a bright flower-garden at the side, and a well-stocked orchard and kitchen-garden in the rear, enclosed with a venerable wall that had of itself a ripened, ruddy look. But, indeed, everything about the place wore an aspect of maturity and abundance. The old lime-tree walk was like green cloisters. The very shadows of the cherry-trees and apple-trees were heavy with fruit, the gooseberry bushes were so laden that their branches arched and rested on the earth the strawberries and raspberries grew in like profusion 
and the peaches basked by the hundred on the wall tumbled about among the spread nets and the glass frames sparkling and winking in the sun there were such heaps of drooping pods and marrows and cucumbers that every foot of ground appeared a vegetable treasury while the smell of sweet herbs and all kinds of wholesome growth to say nothing of the neighbouring meadows where the hay was carrying made the whole air a great nosegay such stillness and composure reigned within the orderly precincts of the old red wall that even the feathers hung in garlands to scare the birds hardly stirred and the wall had such a ripening influence that where here and there high up a disused nail and scrap of list still clung to it it was easy to fancy that they had mellowed with the changing seasons and that they had rusted and decayed according to the common fate the house though a little disorderly in comparison with the garden was a real old house with settles in the chimney of the brick-floored kitchen and great beams across the ceilings on one side of it was the terrible piece of ground in dispute where mr boythorn maintained a sentry in a smock frock day and night whose duty was supposed to be in cases of aggression immediately to ring a large bell hung up there for the purpose to unchain a great bulldog established in a kennel as his ally and generally to deal destruction on the enemy not content with these precautions mr boythorn had himself composed and posted there on painted boards to which his name was attached in large letters the following solemn warnings beware of the bulldog he is most ferocious lawrence boythorn the blunderbuss is loaded with slugs lawrence boythorn man-traps and spring-guns are set here at all times of the day and night lawrence boythorn take notice that any person or persons audaciously presuming to trespass on this property will be punished with the utmost severity of private chastisement and prosecuted with the utmost rigour of the law lawrence boythorn these he showed us from the drawing-room window while his bird was hopping about his head and he laughed <laughs> To that extent, as he pointed them out, that I really thought he would have hurt himself. "'But this is taking a good deal of trouble,' said Mr. Skimpole, in his light way, "'when you are not in earnest, after all.' "'Not in earnest,' returned Mr. Boythorn, with unspeakable warmth. "'Not in earnest.' if i could have hoped to train him i would have bought a lion instead of that dog and would have turned him loose upon the first intolerable robber who should dare to make an encroachment on my rights let sir leicester dedlock consent to come out and decide this question by single combat and i will meet him with any weapon known to mankind in any age or country i am that much in earnest not more we arrived at his house on a saturday on the sunday morning we all set forth to walk to the little church in the park entering the park almost immediately by the disputed ground we pursued a pleasant footpath winding among the verdant turf and the beautiful trees until it brought us to the church porch 
The congregation was extremely small, and quite a rustic one, with the exception of a large muster of servants from the house, some of whom were already in their seats, while others were yet dropping in. There were some stately footmen, and there was a perfect picture of an old coachman, who looked as if he were the official representative of all the pomps and vanities that had ever been put into his coach. There was a very pretty show of young women, and above them the handsome old face and fine responsible portly figure of the housekeeper towered pre-eminent. The pretty girl of whom Mr. Boythorn had told us was close by her. She was so very pretty that I might have known her by her beauty, even if I had not seen how blushingly conscious she was of the eyes of the young fisherman, whom I discovered not far off. One face, and not an agreeable one, though it was handsome, seemed maliciously watchful of this pretty girl, and indeed of every one and everything there. It was a Frenchwoman's. As the bell was yet ringing, and the great people were not yet come, I had leisure to glance over the church, which smelt as earthy as a grave, and to think what a shady, ancient, solemn little church it was. The windows, heavily shaded by trees, admitted a subdued light that made the faces around me pale, and darkened the old brasses in the pavement and the time and damp-worn monuments, and rendered the sunshine in the little porch, where a monotonous ringer was working at the bell, inestimably bright. But a stir in that direction, a gathering of reverential awe in the rustic faces, and a blandly ferocious assumption on the part of Mr. Boythorn of being resolutely unconscious of somebody's existence, forewarned me that the great people were come, and that the service was going to begin. "'Enter not into judgment with thy servant, O Lord, for in thy sight—' Shall I ever forget the rapid beating at my heart, occasioned by the look I met as I stood up? Shall I ever forget the manner in which those handsome proud eyes seemed to spring out of their languor, and to hold mine? It was only a moment before I cast mine down, released again, if I may say so, on my book, but I knew the beautiful face quite well in that short space of time. And— very strangely, there was something quickened within me, associated with the lonely days at my godmother's, yes, away even to the days when I had stood on tiptoe to dress myself at my little glass after dressing my doll. And this, although I had never seen this lady's face before in all my life, I was quite sure of, absolutely certain. It was easy to know that the ceremonious, gouty, grey-haired gentleman, the only other occupant of the great pew, was Sir Lester Dudlock, and that the lady was Lady Dedlock. But why her face should be, in a confused way, like a broken glass to me, in which I saw scraps of old remembrances, and why I should be so fluttered and troubled, for I was still, by having casually met her eyes, I could not think. I felt it to be an unmeaning weakness in me and try to overcome it by attending to the words I heard. Then, very strangely, I seemed to hear them, not in the reader's voice, but in the well-remembered voice of my godmother. This made me think, did Lady Dedlock's face accidentally resemble my godmother's? It might be that it did, a little, but the expression was so different, 
and the stern decision which had worn into my godmother's face like weather into rocks was so completely wanting in the face before me that it could not be that resemblance which had struck me neither did i know the loftiness and haughtiness of lady dedlock's face at all in any one and yet i i little esther summerson the child who lived a life apart and on whose birthday there was no rejoicing seemed to arise before my own eyes evoked out of the past by some power in this fashionable lady whom i not only entertained no fancy that i had ever seen but whom i perfectly well knew i had never seen until that hour it made me tremble so to be thrown into this unaccountable agitation that i was conscious of being distressed even by the observation of the french maid though i knew she had been looking watchfully here and there and everywhere from the moment of her coming into the church by degrees though very slowly i at last overcame my strange emotion after a long time i looked towards lady dedlock again it was while they were preparing to sing before the sermon she took no heed of me and the beating at my heart was gone neither did it revive for more than a few moments when she once or twice afterwards glanced at ada or at me through her glass the service being concluded sir leicester gave his arm with much taste and gallantry to lady dedlock though he was obliged to walk by the help of a thick stick and escorted her out of church to the pony carriage in which they had come the servants then dispersed and so did the congregation whom sir leicester had contemplated all along mr skimpole said to mr boythorn's infinite delight as if he were a considerable landed proprietor in heaven he believes he is said mr boythorn he firmly believes it so did his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather do you know pursued mr skimpole very unexpectedly to mr boythorn it's agreeable to me to see a man of that sort is it said mr boythorn say that he wants to patronize me pursued mr skimpole very well i don't object i do said mr boythorn with great vigour do you really returned mr skimpole in his easy light vein but that's taking trouble surely and why should you take trouble here am i content to receive things childishly as they fall out and i never take trouble i come down here for instance and i find a mighty potentate exacting homage very well i say mighty potentate here is my homage it's easier to give than to withhold it here it is if you have anything of an agreeable nature to show me i shall be happy to see it if you have anything of an agreeable nature to give me i shall be happy to accept it mighty potentate replies in effect this is a sensible fellow i find him accord with my digestion and my bilious system he doesn't impose upon me the necessity of rolling myself up like a hedgehog with my points outward i expand i open i turn my silver lining outward like milton's cloud and it's more agreeable to both of us that's my view of such things speaking as a child but suppose you went down somewhere else to-morrow said mr boythorn 
where there was the opposite of that fellow, or of his fellow. How then? How then? said Mr. Skimpole, with an appearance of the utmost simplicity and candour. Just the same then, I should say, my esteemed Boythorn, to make you the personification of our imaginary friend, my esteemed Boythorn, you object to the mighty potentate? Very good. So do I. I take it that my business in the social system is to be agreeable. I take it that everybody's business in the social system is to be agreeable. It's a system of harmony, in short. Therefore, if you object, I object. Now, excellent Boythorn, let us go to dinner. But excellent Boythorn might say— returned our host, swelling and growing very red. "'I'll be—I understand,' said Mr. Skimpole. "'Very likely he would.' "'If I will go to dinner,' cried Mr. Boythorn in a violent burst, and stopping to strike his stick upon the ground, "'and he would probably add, "'Is there such a thing as principle, Mr. Harold Skimpole?' "'To which Harold Skimpole would reply, you know?' He returned in his gayest manner, and with his most ingenuous smile, "'Upon my life, I have not the least idea. I don't know what it is you call by that name, or whether it is, or who possesses it. If you possess it, and find it comfortable, I am quite delighted, and congratulate you heartily. But I know nothing about it, I assure you, for I am a mere child. I lay no claim to it, and I don't want it. So you see, excellent Boythorn, and I would go to dinner after all. This was one of many little dialogues between them, which I always expected to end, and which I dare say would have ended, under other circumstances, in some violent explosion on the part of our host. But he had so high a sense of his hospitable and responsible position as our entertainer, and my guardian laughed so sincerely at and with Mr. Skimpole, as a child who blew bubbles and broke them all day long, that matters never went beyond this point. Mr. Skimpole, who always seemed quite unconscious of having been on delicate ground, then betook himself to beginning some sketch in the park, which he never finished, or to playing fragments of airs on the piano, or to singing scraps of songs, or to lying down on his back under a tree and looking at the sky, which he couldn't help thinking, he said, was what he was meant for. It suited him so exactly. "'Enterprise and effort,' he would say to us, on his back, "'are delightful to me. I believe I am truly cosmopolitan. I have the deepest sympathy with them.' I lie in a shady place like this, and think of adventurous spirits going to the North Pole, or penetrating to the heart of the torrid zone with admiration. Mercenary creatures ask, what is the use of a man's going to the North Pole? What good does it do? I can't say. But, for anything I can say, he may go for the purpose, though he don't know it, of employing my thoughts as I lie here. Take an extreme case. Take the case of the slaves on American plantations. I dare say they are worked hard. I dare say they don't altogether like it. I dare say theirs is an unpleasant experience on the whole. 
but they people the landscape for me they give it a poetry for me and perhaps that is one of the pleasanter objects of their existence i am very sensible of it if it be and i shouldn't wonder if it were i always wondered on these occasions whether he ever thought of mrs skimpole and the children and in what point of view they presented themselves to his cosmopolitan mind so far as i could understand they rarely presented themselves at all the week had gone round to the saturday following that beating of my heart in the church and every day had been so bright and blue that to ramble in the woods and see the light striking down among the transparent leaves and sparkling in the beautiful interlacings of the shadows of the trees while the birds poured out their songs and the air was drowsy with the hum of insects had been most delightful we had one favourite spot deep in moss and last year's leaves where there were some felled trees from which the bark was all stripped off seated among these we looked through a green vista supported by thousands of natural columns the whitened stems of trees upon a distant prospect made so radiant by its contrast with the shade in which we sat and made so precious by the arched perspective through which we saw it that it was like a glimpse of the better land upon the saturday we sat here mr jarndyce ada and i until we heard thunder muttering in the distance and felt the large raindrops rattle through the leaves the weather had been all the week extremely sultry but the storm broke so suddenly upon us at least in that sheltered spot that before we reached the outskirts of the wood the thunder and lightning were frequent and the rain came plunging through the leaves as if every drop were a great leaden bead as it was not a time for standing among trees we ran out of the wood and up and down the moss-grown steps which crossed the plantation fence like two broad staved ladders placed back to back and made for a keeper's lodge which was close at hand we had often noticed the dark beauty of this lodge standing in a deep twilight of trees and how the ivy clustered over it and how there was a steep hollow near where we had once seen the keeper's dog dive down into the fern as if it were water the lodge was so dark within now the sky was overcast that we only clearly saw the man who came to the door when we took shelter there and put two chairs for ada and me the latter's windows were all thrown open and we sat just within the doorway watching the storm it was grand to see how the wind awoke and bent the trees and drove the rain before it like a cloud of smoke and to hear the solemn thunder and to see the lightning and while thinking with awe of the tremendous powers by which our little lives are encompassed to consider how beneficent they are and how upon the smallest flower and leaf there was already a freshness poured from all this seeming rage which seemed to make creation new again is it not dangerous to sit in so exposed a place oh no esther dear said ada quietly ada said it to me but i had not spoken the beating of my heart came back again i had never heard the voice as i had never seen the face but it affected me in the same strange way. Again, in a moment, there arose before my mind innumerable pictures of myself. Lady Dedlock had taken shelter in the lodge before our arrival there, and had come out of the gloom within. She stood behind my chair with her hand upon it. I saw her with her hand close to my shoulder when I turned my head. "'I have frightened you,' she said 
"'No, it was not fright. Why should I be frightened?' "'I believe,' said Lady Dedlock to my guardian, "'I have the pleasure of speaking to Mr. Jarndyce. "'Your remembrance does me more honour than I had supposed it would, Lady Dedlock,' he returned. "'I recognised you in church on Sunday. "'I am sorry that any local disputes of Sir Leicester's, "'they are not of his seeking, however, I believe, "'should render it a matter of some absurd difficulty "'to show you any attention here. "'I am aware of the circumstances,' "'returned my guardian with a smile, "'and am sufficiently obliged.' "'She had given him her hand, in an indifferent way, "'that seemed habitual to her, and spoke in a correspondingly indifferent manner, though in a very pleasant voice. She was as graceful as she was beautiful, perfectly self-possessed, and had the air, I thought, of being able to attract and interest any one, if she had thought it worth her while. The keeper had brought her a chair on which she sat in the middle of the porch between us. "'Is the young gentleman disposed of, whom you wrote to Sir Leicester about, and whose wishes Sir Leicester was sorry not to have it in his power to advance in any way?' she said over her shoulder to my guardian. "'I hope so,' said he. She seemed to respect him, and even to wish to conciliate him. There was something very winning in her haughty manner, and it became more familiar. I was going to say more easy, but that could hardly be as she spoke to him over her shoulder. "'I presume this is your other ward, Miss Clare?' He presented Ada in form. "'You will lose the disinterested part of your Don Quixote character,' said Lady Dedlock to Mr. Jarndyce over her shoulder again, "'if you only redress the wrongs of beauty like this. But present me,' and she turned fully upon me, to this young lady, too. "'Miss Summerson really is my ward,' said Mr. Jarndyce. "'I am responsible to no Lord Chancellor in her case.' "'Has Miss Summerson lost both her parents?' said my lady. "'Yes. She is very fortunate in her guardian.' Lady Dedlock looked at me, and I looked at her, and said I was indeed. All at once she turned from me with a hasty air, almost expressive of displeasure or dislike, and spoke to him over her shoulder again. "'Ages have passed since we were in the habit of meeting, Mr. Jarndyce.' "'A long time. At least I thought it was a long time, until I saw you last Sunday,' he returned. "'What? Even you are a courtier?' or think it necessary to become one to me? She said with some disdain. I have achieved that reputation, I suppose. You have achieved so much, Lady Dedlock, said my guardian, that you pay some little penalty, I dare say, but none to me. So much, she repeated, slightly laughing. Yes. With her air of superiority and power and fascination, and I know not what, she seemed to regard Ada and me as little more than children. So, as she slightly laughed, and afterwards sat looking at the rain, she was as self-possessed and as free to occupy herself with her own thoughts as if she had been alone. 
"'I think you knew my sister when we were abroad together better than you know me,' she said, looking at him again. "'Yes, we happened to meet oftener,' he returned. "'We went our several ways,' said Lady Dedlock, "'and had little in common, even before we agreed to differ. "'It is to be regretted, I suppose, but it could not be helped.' Lady Dedlock again sat looking at the rain. The storm soon began to pass upon its way. The shower greatly abated, the lightning ceased, the thunder rolled among the distant hills, and the sun began to glisten on the wet leaves and the falling rain. As we sat there, silently, we saw a little pony Phaeton coming towards us at a merry pace. "'The messenger is coming back, my lady,' said the keeper with the carriage. As it drove up, we saw that there were two people inside. There alighted from it, with some cloaks and wrappers, first the Frenchwoman, whom I had seen in church, and secondly the pretty girl, the Frenchwoman with a defiant confidence, the pretty girl confused and hesitating. "'What now?' said Lady Dedlock. Two. "'I am your maid, my lady, at present.' said the Frenchwoman. The message was for the attendant. "'I was afraid you might mean me, my lady,' said the pretty girl. "'I did mean you, child,' replied her mistress calmly. "'Put that shawl on me.' She slightly stooped her shoulders to receive it, and the pretty girl lightly dropped it in its place. The Frenchwoman stood unnoticed, looking on, with her lips very tightly set. "'I am sorry,' said Lady Dedlock to Mr. Jarndyce, "'that we are not likely to renew our former acquaintance. You will allow me to send the carriage back for your two wards. It shall be here directly.' But as he would on no account accept this offer, she took a graceful leave of Ada, none of me, and put her hand upon his proffered arm, and got into the carriage which was a little low park carriage with a hood. "'Come in, child,' she said to the pretty girl. "'I shall want you. Go on.' The carriage rolled away, and the Frenchwoman, with the wrappers she had brought hanging over her arm, remained standing where she had alighted. "'I suppose there is nothing pride can so little bear with as pride itself,' and that she was punished for her imperious manner. Her retaliation was the most singular I could have imagined. She remained perfectly still until the carriage had turned into the drive, and then, without the least discomposure of countenance, slipped off her shoes, left them on the ground, and walked deliberately in the same direction through the wettest of the wet grass. "'Is that young woman mad?' said my guardian. "'Oh, no, sir,' said the keeper, who with his wife was looking after her. "'Hortent is not one of that sort. She has as good a piece as the best. But she's mortal high and passionate, powerful high and passionate, and what with having notice to leave, and having others put above her, she don't take kindly to it.' 
"'But why should she walk shoeless through all that water?' said my guardian. "'Why, indeed, sir, unless it is to cool her down,' said the man. "'Or unless she fancies it's blood,' said the woman. "'She'd as soon walk through that as anything else, I think, when her own's up.' We passed not far from the house a few minutes afterwards. Peaceful as it had looked when we first saw it, it looked even more so now, with a diamond spray glittering all about it, a light wind blowing, the birds no longer hushed but singing strongly, everything refreshed by the late rain, and the little carriage shining at the doorway like a fairy carriage made of silver. Still, very steadfastly and quietly walking towards it, a peaceful figure, too, in the landscape, went Mademoiselle Hortense shoeless through the wet grass. End of chapter 18「Chapter 19 of Bleak House This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 19. Moving On. It is the long vacation in the regions of Chancery Lane. The good ships Law and Equity, those teak-built, copper-bottomed, iron-fastened, brazen-faced, and not by any means fast-sailing clippers, are laid up in ordinary. The flying Dutchman, with a crew of ghostly clients imploring all whom they may encounter to peruse their papers, has drifted for the time being heaven knows where. The courts are all shut up, the public offices lie in a hot sleep, Westminster Hall itself is a shady solitude where nightingales might sing, and a tenderer class of suitors than is usually found there walk. The Temple, Chancery Lane, Sergeant's Inn, and Lincoln's Inn, even unto the fields, are like tidal harbours at low water, where stranded proceedings, officers at anchor, idle clerks lounging on lopsided stools that will not recover their perpendicular until the current of term sets in, lie high and dry upon the ooze of the long vacation. Outer doors of chambers are shut up by the score. Messages and parcels are to be left at the porter's lodge by the bushel. A crop of grass would grow in the chinks of the stone pavement outside Lincoln's Inn Hall, but that the ticket-porters, who had nothing to do beyond sitting in the shade there, with their white aprons over their heads to keep the flies off, grub it up and eat it thoughtfully. There is only one judge in town, even he only comes twice a week to sit in chambers. If the country folks of those assized towns on his circuit could see him now, no full-bottomed wig, no red petticoats, no fur, no javelin men, no white wands, merely a close-shaved gentleman in white trousers and a white hat, with sea-bronze on the judicial countenance, and a strip of bark peeled by the solar rays from the judicial nose, who calls in at the shellfish shop as he comes along, and drinks iced ginger-beer. The bar of England is scattered over the face of the earth. How England can get on through four long summer months without its bar— which is its acknowledged refuge in adversity, and its only legitimate triumph in prosperity, is beside the question. Assuredly that shield and buckler of Britannia are not in present wear. 
the learned gentleman who was always so tremendously indignant at the unprecedented outrage committed on the feelings of his client by the opposite party that he never seems likely to recover it is doing infinitely better than might be expected in switzerland the learned gentleman who does the withering business and who blights all opponents with his gloomy sarcasm is as merry as a grig at a french watering-place the learned gentleman who weeps by the pint on the smallest provocation has not shed a tear these six weeks the very learned gentleman who has cooled the natural heat of his gingery complexion in pools and fountains of law until he has become great in knotty arguments for term time when he poses the drowsy bench with legal chaff inexplicable to the uninitiated and to most of the initiated too is roaming with a characteristic delight in aridity and dust about constantinople other dispersed fragments of the same great palladium are to be found on the canals of venice at the second cataract of the nile in the baths of germany and sprinkled on the sea-sand all over the english coast scarcely one is to be encountered in the deserted region of chancery lane if such a lonely member of the bar do flit across the waste and come upon a prowling suitor who is unable to leave off haunting the scenes of his anxiety they frighten one another and retreat into opposite shades it is the hottest long vacation known for many years all the young clerks are madly in love and according to their various degrees pine for bliss with the beloved object at margate ramsgate or gravesend all the middle-aged clerks think their families too large all the unowned dogs who strain to the inns of court and pant about staircases and other dry places seeking water give short howls of aggravation all the blind men's dogs in the streets draw their masters against pumps or trip them over buckets a shop with a sun-blind and a watered pavement and a bowl of gold and silver fish in the window is a sanctuary temple bar gets so hot that it is to the adjacent strand and fleet street what a heater is in an urn and keeps them simmering all night there are offices about the inns of court in which a man might be cool if any coolness were worth purchasing at such a price in dullness but the little thoroughfares immediately outside those retirements seem to blaze in mr crook's court it is so hot that the people turn their houses inside out and sit in chairs upon the pavement mr crook included who there pursues his studies with his cat who never is too hot by his side the sol's arms has discontinued the harmonic meetings for the season and little swills is engaged at the pastoral gardens down the river where he comes out in quite an innocent manner and sings comic ditties of a juvenile complexion calculated as the bill says not to wound the feelings of the most fastidious mind over all the legal neighbourhood there hangs like some great veil of rust or gigantic cobweb the idleness and pensiveness of the long vacation mr snagsby law stationer of cook's court cursitor street is sensible of the influence not only in his mind as a sympathetic and contemplative man but also in his business as a law stationer aforesaid he has more leisure for musing in staple inn and in the rolls yard during the long vacation than at other seasons he says to the two prentices what a thing it is in such hot weather to think that you live in an island with the sea a-rolling and a-bowling right round you guster is busy in the little drawing-room on this present afternoon in the long vacation when mr and mrs snagsby have it in contemplation to receive company the expected guests are rather select than numerous being mr and mrs chadband and no more 
from mr chadband's being much given to describe himself both verbally and in writing as a vessel he is occasionally mistaken by strangers for a gentleman connected with navigation but he is as he expresses it in the ministry mr chadband is attached to no particular denomination and is considered by his persecutors to have nothing so very remarkable to say on the greatest of subjects as to render his volunteering on his own account at all incumbent on his conscience but he has his followers and mrs snagsby is of the number mrs snagsby has but recently taken a passage upward by the vessel chadband and her attention was attracted to that bark a one when she was something flushed by the hot weather my little woman says mr snagsby to the sparrows in stable inn likes to have her religion rather sharp you see so gusta much impressed by regarding herself for the time as the handmaid of chadband whom she knows to be endowed with the gift of holding forth for four hours at a stretch prepares the little drawing-room for tea all the furniture is shaken and dusted the portraits of mr and mrs snagsby are touched up with a wet cloth the best tea-service is set forth, and there is excellent provision made of dainty new bread, crusty twists, cool fresh butter, thin slices of ham, tongue, and German sausage, and delicate little rows of anchovies nestling in parsley, not to mention new-laid eggs, to be brought up warm in a napkin, and hot-buttered toast. For Chadband is rather a consuming vessel. The persecutors say, a gorging vessel and can wield such weapons of the flesh as a knife and fork remarkably well. Mr. Snagsby, in his best coat, looking at all the preparations when they are completed, and coughing his cough of deference behind his hand, says to Mrs. Snagsby, <coughs> "'At what time did you expect Mr. and Mrs. Chadband, my love?' "'At six, says Mrs. Snagsby. Mr. Snagsby observes in a mild and casual way that it's— gone that perhaps you'd like to begin without them is mrs snagsby's reproachful remark mr snagsby does look as if he would like it very much but he says with his cough of mildness <coughs> no my dear no i merely named the time what's time says mrs snagsby to eternity oh, very true my dear <coughs> says mr snagsby only when a person lays in victuals for tea a person does it with a view perhaps more to time and when a time is named for having tea it's better to come up to it to come up to it mrs snagsby repeats with severity up to it as if mr chadband was a fighter <coughs> not at all my dear says mr snagsby here guster who had been looking out of the bedroom window comes rustling and scratching down the little staircase like a popular ghost and falling flush into the drawing-room announces that mr and mrs chadband have appeared in the court the bell at the inner door in the passage immediately thereafter tinkling she is admonished by mrs snagsby on pain of instant reconsignment to her patron saint not to omit the ceremony of announcement much discomposed in her nerves which were previously in the best order by this threat she so fearfully mutilates that point of state as to announce uh, mr and mrs cheeseming leaswich i mean to say what's her name and retires conscience-stricken from the presence.
Mr. Chadband is a large yellow man with a fat smile, and a general appearance of having a good deal of train oil in his system. Mrs. Chadband is a stern, severe-looking, silent woman. Mr. Chadband moves softly and cumbrously, not unlike a bear who has been taught to walk upright. He is very much embarrassed about the arms, as if they were inconvenient to him, and he wanted to grovel, is very much in a perspiration about the head, and never speaks without first putting up his great hand, as delivering a token to his hearers that he is going to edify them. "'My friends,' says Mr. Chadband, "'beasts be on this house.' on the master thereof on the mistress thereof on the young maidens and on the young men my friends why do i wish for peace what is peace is it war no is it strife no is it lovely and gentle and beautiful and pleasant and serene and joyful oh yes therefore my friends i wish for peace upon you and upon yours in consequence of mrs snagsby looking deeply edified mr snagsby thinks it expedient on the whole to say amen which is well received now my friends proceeds mr chadband since i am upon this theme gusta presents herself Mrs. Snagsby, in a spectral bass voice, and without removing her eyes from Chadband, says with dreadful distinctness, "'Go away!' "'Now, my friends,' says Chadband, "'since I am upon this theme, and in my lowly path, improving it—' Guster is heard, unaccountably, to murmur, "'One thousand seven hundred and eighty-two the spectral voice repeats more solemnly, "'Go away!' "'Now, my friends,' says Mr. Chadband, "'we will inquire in a spirit of love.' Still, Guster reiterates, "'One thousand seven hundred and eighty-two. Mr. Chadband, pausing with the resignation of a man, accustomed to be persecuted and languidly folding up his chin into his fat smile, says, "'Let us hear the maiden speak.' "'Speak, maiden.' "'One thousand seven hundred and eighty-two, if you please, sir, which you wish to know what the shilling were for,' says Guster, breathless. "'For?' returns Mrs. Chadband. "'For his fare.' Guster replies that he insists on one and eightpence or on some incising the party. Mrs. Snagsby and Mrs. Chadband are proceeding to grow shrill in indignation when Mr. Chadband quiets the tumult by lifting up his hand. My friends, says he, I remember a duty unfulfilled yesterday. It is right that I should be chastened in some penalty. "'I ought not to murmur. Rachel, pay the eightpence.' While Mrs. Snagsby, drawing her breath, looks hard at Mr. Snagsby, as who should say, "'You hear this apostle?' And while Mr. Chadband glows with humility and train-oil, Mrs. Chadband pays the money. It is Mr. Chadband's habit, it is the head and front of his pretensions, indeed, to keep this sort of debtor and creditor account in the smallest items, and to post it publicly on the most trivial occasions. "'My friends,' 
says Chadband, eightpence is not much. It might justly have been one and fourpence. It might justly have been half a crown. Oh, let us be joyful, joyful, oh, let us be joyful. With which remark, which appears from its sound to be an extract in verse, Mr. Chadband stalks to the table, and before taking a chair, lifts up his admonitory hand. "'My friends,' says he, "'what is this which we now behold as being spread before us? Refreshment? Do we need refreshment, then, my friends? We do. And why do we need refreshment, my friends? Because we are but mortal, because we are but sinful, because we are but of the earth, because we are not of the air can we fly my friends we cannot why can we not fly my friends mr snagsby presuming on the success of his last point ventures to observe in a cheerful and rather knowing tone no wings but is immediately frowned down by mrs snagsby i say my friends pursues mr chadband utterly rejecting and obliterating Mr. Snagsby's suggestion. Why can we not fly? Is it because we are calculated to walk? It is. Could we walk, my friends, without strength? We could not. What should we do without strength, my friends? Our legs would refuse to bear us, our knees would double up, our ankles would turn over, and we should come to the ground. Then from whence, my friends, in a human point of view, do we derive the strength that is necessary to our limbs? Is it? says Chadband, glancing over the table, from bread, in various forms, from butter, which is churned from the milk, which is yielded unto us by the cow, from the eggs, which are laid by the fowl, from ham, from tongue, from sausage, and from such like? It is. Then let us partake of the good things which are set before us. The persecutors denied that there was any particular gift in Mr. Chadband's piling verbose flights of stairs, one upon another, after his fashion. But this can only be received as a proof of their determination to persecute, since it must be within everybody's experience that the Chadband style of oratory is widely received and much admired. Mr. Chadband, however, having concluded for the present, sits down at Mr. Snagsby's table, and lays about him prodigiously. The conversion of nutriment of any sort into oil of the quality already mentioned appears to be a process so inseparable from the constitution of his exemplary vessel, that in beginning to eat and drink he may be described as always becoming a kind of considerable oil mills, or other large factory for the production of that article on a wholesale scale. On the present evening of the long vacation, in Cook's Court, Cursitor Street, he does such a powerful stroke of business that the warehouse appears to be quite full when the works cease. At this period of the entertainment, Guster, who has never recovered her first failure, but has neglected no possible or impossible means of bringing the establishment and herself into contempt, among which may be briefly enumerated her unexpectedly performing clashing military music on mr chadband's head with plates and afterwards crowning that gentleman with muffins at which period of the entertainment guster whispers mr snagsby that he is wanted 
and being wanted in the <coughs> not, not to put too fine a point upon it in the shop says mr snagsby rising <coughs> perhaps this good company will excuse me for a half a minute mr snagsby descends and finds the two prentices intently contemplating a police constable who holds a ragged boy by the arm why <coughs> bless my heart says mr snagsby <coughs> what's the matter this boy says the constable although he's repeatedly told to won't move on i'm always a moving on sir cries the boy wiping away his grimy tears with his arm i've always been a moving and a moving on ever since i was born where can i possibly move to sir more more nor i do move he won't move on says the constable calmly with a slight professional hitch of his neck involving its better settlement in his stiff stock although he has been repeatedly cautioned and therefore i am obliged to take him into custody he's as obstinate a young gonoff as i know he won't move on oh my eye where can i move to cries the boy clutching quite desperately at his hair and beating his bare feet upon the floor of mr snagsby's passage don't you come none of that or i shall make blessed short work of you says the constable giving him a passionless shake my instructions are that you are to move on i have told you so five hundred times but where cries the boy well really constable you know says mr snagsby wistfully and coughing behind his hand his cough of great perplexity and doubt really that does seem a question where you know my instructions don't go to that replies the constable my instructions are that this boy is to move on do you hear joe it is nothing to you or to any one else that the great lights of the parliamentary sky have failed for some few years in this business to set you the example of moving on the one grand recipe remains for you the profound philosophical prescription the be-all and the end-all of your strange existence upon earth move on you are by no means to move off joe for the great lights can't at all agree about that move on mr snagsby says nothing to this effect says nothing at all indeed but coughs his forlornest cough expressive of no thoroughfare in any direction by this time mr and mrs chadband and mrs snagsby hearing the altercation have appeared upon the stairs guster having never left the end of the passage the whole household are assembled the simple question is sir says the constable whether you know this boy he says you do mrs snagsby from her elevation instantly cries out no he don't my little woman says mr snagsby looking up the staircase my love permit me pray have a moment's patience my dear i do know something of this lad and in what i know of him i can't say there's any harm perhaps on the contrary constable to whom the law-stationer relates 
his joeful and woeful experience, suppressing the half-crown fact. "'Well,' says the constable, "'so far, it seems, he had grounds for what he said. When I took him into custody up in Holborn, he said you knew him. Upon that, a young man who was in the crowd said he was acquainted with you, and you were a respectable housekeeper, and if I'd call and make the inquiry, he'd appear.' The young man don't seem inclined to keep his word, but—oh, uh, here is the young man. Enter Mr. Guppy, who nods to Mr. Snagsby, and touches his hat with the chivalry of clerkship to the ladies on the stairs. "'I was strolling away from the office just now, when I found this row going on,' says Mr. Guppy to the law stationer, "'and as your name was mentioned, I thought it was right the thing should be looked into.' "'It uh, <coughs> was very good-natured of you, sir,' says Mr. Snagsby, "'and I am obliged to you.' And Mr. Snagsby again relates his experience, again suppressing the half-crown fact. "'Now I know where you live,' says the constable, then to Joe. "'You live down in Tom All Alones. That's a nice innocent place to live in, ain't it?' "'Ah, oh, can't go and live in no nicer place, sir.' replies Joe. They wouldn't have nothing to say to me if I was to go to a nice innocent place for to live. Who would go and let a nice innocent lodging to such a regular one as me? You are very poor, ain't you? says the constable. Yes, I am indeed, sir. Were we poor in general? replies Joe. "'I leave you to judge now. "'I shook these two half-crowns out of him,' says the constable, producing them to the company. "'In only putting my hand upon him.' "'There what's left, Mr. Snagsby,' says Joe, "'out of a sovereign, as was give me by a lady in a whale. "'I said she was a servant, and has come to my crossing one night.' and asked to be showed this ere house and the house what him as you give the writing to died at and the burying ground what he's buried in she says to me she says are you the boy at the inkwich she says i says yes i says she says to me she says can you show me all them places i says yes i can i says and she says to me do it and i done it and she give me a sovereign and hooked it and i ain't had much of the sovereign neither says joe with dirty tears for i had to pay five bob down in tom all alone afore they'd square it for to give me change and then a young man he thieved another five while i was asleep and another boy he thieved nightmares, and the landlord he stood drains round with a lot more on it. You don't expect anybody to believe this about the lady and the sovereign, do you? Says the constable, eyeing him aside with ineffable disdain. I don't know as I do, sir. Replies Joe. I don't expect nothing at all, sir, much, but that's the true history on it. "'You see what he is,' the constable observes to the audience. "'Well, Mr. Snagsby, if I don't lock him up this time, 
Will you engage for his moving on? No, cries Mrs. Snagsby from the stairs. <clears throat> My little woman, pleads her husband. Constable, I have no doubt he'll move on. You know, you really must do it, says Mr. Snagsby. I'm every ways agreeable, sir, says the hapless Joe. Do it, then, observes the constable. You know what you have got to do. Do it. And recollect you won't get off so easy next time. Catch hold of your money. Now, the sooner you're five mile off, the better for all parties. With this farewell hint, and pointing generally to the setting sun as a likely place to move on to, the constable bids his auditors good afternoon, and makes the echoes of Cook's Court perform slow music for him as he walks away on the shady side, carrying his iron-bound hat in his hand for a little ventilation. Now, Joe's improbable story concerning the lady and the sovereign has awakened more or less the curiosity of all the company. Mr. Guppy, who has an inquiring mind in matters of evidence, and who has been suffering severely from the lassitude of the long vacation, takes that interest in the case that he enters on a regular cross-examination of the witness, which is found so interesting by the ladies, that Mrs. Snagsby politely invites him to step upstairs and drink a cup of tea, if he will excuse the disarranged state of the tea-table, consequent on their previous exertions. Mr. Guppy yielding his assent to this proposal, Joe is requested to follow into the drawing-room doorway, where Mr. Guppy takes him in hand as a witness, patting him into this shape, that shape, and the other shape, like a butter-man, dealing with so much butter, and worrying him according to the best models. Nor is the examination unlike many such model displays, both in respect of its eliciting nothing, and of its being lengthy, for Mr. Guppy is sensible of his talent, and Mrs. Snagsby feels not only that it gratifies her inquisitive disposition, but that it lifts her husband's establishment higher up in the law. During the progress of this keen encounter, the vessel Chadband, being merely engaged in the oil trade, gets aground, and waits to be floated off. "'Well,' says Mr. Guppy, "'either this boy sticks to it like cobbler's wax, or there is something out of the common here that beats anything that ever came into my way at Kenge and Carboys.' Mrs. Chadband whispers Mrs. Snagsby, who exclaims, "'You don't say so.' Four years,' replied Mrs. Chadband. "'Has known Kenge and Carboy's office for years,' Mrs. Snagsby triumphantly explains to Mr. Guppy. "'Mrs. Chadband, this gentleman's wife, Reverend Mr. Chadband.' "'Oh, indeed,' says Mr. Guppy. "'Before I married my present husband,' says Mrs. Chadband, "'Was you a party in anything, ma'am?' says Mr. Guppy, transferring his cross-examination. "'No.' "'Not a party in anything, ma'am?' says Mr. Guppy. Mrs. Chadband shakes her head. Uh, "'Perhaps you were acquainted with somebody who was a party in something, ma'am?' says Mr. Guppy, who likes nothing better than to model his conversation on forensic principles. "'Not exactly that, either,' replies Mrs. Chadband, humouring the joke with a hard-favoured smile. "'Not exactly that, either,' repeats Mr. Guppy. "'Very good. Uh, pray, ma'am, was it a lady of your acquaintance, who had some transactions—we will not at present say what transactions—with Kenjin Carboy's office, or was it a gentleman of your acquaintance? Take time, ma'am. We shall come to it presently. Man or woman, ma'am? Neither, says Mrs. Chadband, as before. Oh, 
a child says mr guppy throwing on the admiring mrs snagsby the regular acute professional eye which is thrown on british jurymen now ma'am perhaps you'll have the kindness to tell us what child you have got it at last sir says mrs chadband with another hard-favoured smile well sir it was before your time most likely judging from your appearance i was left in charge of a child named esther summerson who was put out in life by messrs kenge and carboy miss summerson ma'am cries mr guppy excited i call her esther summerson says mrs chadband with austerity there was no missing of the girl in my time it was esther esther do this esther do that and she was made to do it my dear ma'am returns mr guppy moving across the small apartment the humble individual who now addresses you received that young lady in london when she first came here from the establishment to which you have alluded allow me to have the pleasure of taking you by the hand mr chadband at last seeing his opportunity makes his accustomed signal and rises with a smoking head which he dabs with his pocket-handkerchief mrs snagsby whispers hush my friends says chadband we have partaken in moderation which was certainly not the case so far as he was concerned of the comforts which have been provided for us may this house live upon the fatness of the land may corn and wine be plentiful therein may it grow may it thrive may it prosper may it advance may it proceed may it press forward but my friends have we partaken of anything else we have my friends of what else have we partaken of spiritual profit yes from whence have we derived that spiritual profit my young friend stand forth joe thus apostrophized gives a slouch backward and another slouch forward and another slouch to each side and confronts the eloquent chadband with evident doubts of his intentions my young friend says chadband you are to us a pearl you are to us a diamond you are to us a gem you are to us a jewel and why my young friend i don't know replies joe i don't know nothing my young friend says chadband it is because you know nothing that you are to us a gem and a jewel for what are you my young friend are you a beast of the field no a bird of the air no a fish of the sea or river no you are a human boy my young friend a human boy <gasps> glorious to be a human boy and why glorious my young friend because you are capable of receiving the lessons of wisdom because you are capable of profiting by this discourse which i now deliver for your good because you are not a stick or a staff or a stock or a stone or a post or a pillar oh running stream of sparkling joy to be a soaring human boy and do you cool yourself in that stream now my young friend no why 
do you not cool yourself in that stream now because you are in a state of darkness because you are in a state of obscurity because you are in a state of sinfulness because you are in a state of bondage my young friend what is bondage let us in a spirit of love inquire at this threatening stage of the discourse joe who seems to have been gradually going out of his mind smears his right arm over his face and gives a terrible yawn mrs snagsby indignantly expresses her belief that he is a limb of the arch-fiend my friends said mr chadband with his persecuted chin folding itself into its fat smile again as he looks round it is right that i should be humbled it is right that i should be tried it is right that i should be mortified it is right that i should be corrected i stumbled on sabbath last when i thought with pride of my three hours improving the account is now favourably balanced my creditor has accepted a composition oh let us be joyful joyful oh let us be joyful great sensation on the part of mrs snagsby my friends says chadband looking around him in conclusion i will not proceed with my young friend now will you come to-morrow my young friend and inquire of this good lady where i am to be found to deliver a discourse unto you and will you come like the thirsty swallow upon the next day and upon the day after that and upon the day after that and upon many pleasant days to hear discourses this with a cow-like lightness joe whose immediate object seems to be to get away on any terms gives a shuffling nod mr guppy then throws him a penny and mrs snagsby calls to guster to see him safely out of the house but before he goes downstairs mr snagsby loads him with some broken meats from the table which he carries away hugging in his arms so mr chadband of whom the persecutors say that it is no wonder he should go on for any length of time uttering such abominable nonsense but that the wonder rather is that he should ever leave off having once the audacity to begin retires into private life until he invests a little capital of supper in the oil trade joe moves on through the long vacation down to blackfriars bridge where he finds a baking stony corner wherein to settle to his repast and there he sits munching and gnawing and looking up at the great cross on the summit of st paul's cathedral glittering above a red and violet tinted cloud of smoke from the boy's face one might suppose that sacred emblem to be in his eyes the crowning confusion of the great confused city so golden so high up so far out of his reach there he sits the sun going down the river running fast the crowd flowing by him in two streams everything moving on to some purpose and to one end until he is stirred up and told to move on too end of chapter 19「Chapter Twenty of Bleak House This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty A New Lodger. 
the long vacation saunters on towards term-time, like an idle river, very leisurely strolling down a flat country to the sea. Mr. Guppy saunters along with it, congenially. He has blunted the blade of his penknife, and broken the point off, by sticking that instrument into his desk in every direction. Not that he bears the desk any ill-will, but he must do something, and it must be something of an unexciting nature, which will lay neither his physical nor his intellectual energies under too heavy contribution. He finds that nothing agrees with him so well as to make little gyrations on one leg of his stool, and stab his desk, and gape. Kenge and Carboy are out of town, and the article clerk has taken out a shooting license, and gone down to his father's, and Mr. Guppy's two fellow-stipendiaries are away on leave. Mr. Guppy and Mr. Richard Carstone divide the dignity of the office. But Mr. Carstone is, for the time being, established in Kenge's room, whereat Mr. Guppy chafes so exceedingly that he, with biting sarcasm, informs his mother, in the confidential moments when he sups with her off a lobster and lettuce in the old street road, that he is afraid the office is hardly good enough for swells, and that if he had known there was a swell coming, he would have got it painted. Mr. Guppy suspects everybody who enters on the occupation of a stool in Kenge and Carboy's office of entertaining, as a matter of course, sinister designs upon him he is clear that every such person wants to depose him if he be ever asked how why when or wherefore he shuts up one eye and shakes his head on the strength of these profound views he in the most ingenious manner takes infinite pains to counterplot when there is no plot and plays the deepest games of chess without any adversary it is a source of much gratification to Mr. Guppy, therefore, to find the newcomer constantly poring over the papers in Jarndyce and Jarndyce, for he well knows that nothing but confusion and failure can come of that. His satisfaction communicates itself to a third saunterer through the long vacation in Kenge and Carboy's office, to wit, young Smallweed. Whether young Smallweed, metaphorically called small, and eke chick-weed, as it were jocularly to express a fledgling, was ever a boy, is much doubted in Lincoln's Inn. He is now something under fifteen, and an old limb of the law. He is facetiously understood to entertain a passion for a lady at a cigar-shop, in the neighbourhood of Chancery Lane, and for her sake to have broken off a contract with another lady, to whom he had been engaged some years. He is a town-made article, of small stature, weazen features, but may be perceived from a considerable distance by means of his very tall hat. To become a guppy is the object of his ambition. He dresses at that gentleman, by whom he is patronised, talks at him, walks at him, founds himself entirely on him. He is honoured with Mr. Guppy's particular confidence, and occasionally advises him from the deep wells of his experience on difficult points in private life. Mr. Guppy has been lolling out of window all the morning, after trying all the stools in succession, and finding none of them easy, and after several times putting his head into the iron safe with a notion of cooling it. Mr. Smallweed has been twice dispatched for effervescent drinks, and has twice mixed them in the two official tumblers, and stirred them up with the ruler. Mr. Guppy propounds for Mr. Smallweed's consideration the paradox that the more you drink, the thirstier you are and reclines his head upon the window-sill in a state of hopeless languor. While thus looking out into the shade of Old Square, Lincoln's Inn, surveying the intolerable bricks and mortar, 
Mr. Guppy becomes conscious of a manly whisker emerging from the cloistered walk below, and turning itself up in the direction of his face. At the same time, a low whistle is wafted through the inn, and a suppressed voice cries, Hip! Guppy! Why, you don't mean it, says Mr. Guppy aroused. Small, here's Joplin. Small's head looks out of window, too, and nods to Jopling. "'Where have you sprang up from?' inquires Mr. Guppy. "'From the market gardens down by Deptford. I can't stand it any longer. I must enlist. I say, I wish you'd lend me half a crown. Upon my soul, I'm hungry.' Jobbling looks hungry, and also has the appearance of having run to seed in the market gardens down by Deptford. "'I say, just so half a crown, if you've got one to spare, I want to get some dinner.' "'Will you come and dine with me?' says Mr. Guppy, throwing out the coin, which Mr. Jobling catches neatly. "'How long should I have to hold out?' says Jobling. "'Not half an hour. I'm only waiting here till the enemy goes,' returns Mr. Guppy, butting inward with his head. "'What enemy? A new one. Going to be articled. Will you wait?' "'Can you give a fellow anything to read in the meantime?' says Mr. Jobling. Smallweed suggests the law-list but Mr. Jobling declares with much earnestness that he can't stand it. "'You shall have the paper,' says Mr. Guppy. "'He shall bring it down. But you bear not be seen about here. Sit on our staircase and read. It's a quiet place.' Jobling nods intelligence and acquiescence. The sagacious smallweed supplies him with the newspaper, and occasionally drops his eye upon him from the landing as a precaution against his becoming disgusted with waiting and making an untimely departure. At last the enemy retreats, and then Smallweed fetches Mr. Jobling up. "'Well, and how are you?' says Mr. Guppy, shaking hands with him. "'So-so, how are you?' Mr. Guppy replying that he is not much to boast of, Mr. Jobling ventures on the question, "'How is she?' This Mr. Guppy resents as a liberty, retorting, "'Jobling, there are chords in the human mind.' Jobling begs pardon. "'Any subject but that,' says Mr. Guppy, with a gloomy enjoyment of his injury, "'for there are chords, Jobling.' Mr. Jobling begs pardon again. During this short colloquy, the active Smallweed, who is of the dinner-party, has written in legal characters on a slip of paper, "'Return immediately.' This notification to all whom it may concern, he inserts in the letter-box." and then putting on the tall hat at the angle of inclination at which Mr. Guppy wears his, informs his patron that they may now make themselves scarce. Accordingly, they betake themselves to a neighbouring dining-house, of the class known among its frequenters by the denomination Slap-Bang, where the waitress, a bouncing young female of forty, is supposed to have made some impression on the susceptible Smallweed, of whom it may be remarked that he is a weird changeling to whom years are nothing." He stands precociously possessed of centuries of owlish wisdom. If he ever lay in a cradle, it seems as if he must have lain there in a tail-coat. He has an old, old eye, has Smallweed, and he drinks and smokes in a monkeyish way, and his neck is stiff in his collar, and he is never to be taken in, and he knows all about it, whatever it is. In short, in his bringing up, he has been so nursed by law and equity that he has become a kind of fossil imp to account for whose terrestrial existence it is reported at the public offices that his father was John Doe, and his mother the only female member of the Roe family, 
also that his first long clothes were made from a blue bag. Into the dining-house, unaffected by the seductive show in the window of artificially whitened cauliflower and poultry, verdant baskets of peas, coolly blooming cucumbers, and joints ready for the spit, Mr. Smallweed leads the way. They know him there, and defer to him. He has his favourite box, he bespeaks all the papers, he is down upon the bald patriarchs, who keep them more than ten minutes afterwards. It is of no use trying him with anything less than a full-sized bread, or proposing to him any joint in cut, unless it is in the very best cut, in the matter of gravy he is adamant. Conscious of his elfin power, and submitting to his dread experience, Mr. Guppy consults him in the choice of that day's banquet, turning an appealing look towards him as the waitress repeats the catalogue of viands, and saying, "'What do you take, Chick?' Chick, out of the profundity of his artfulness, preferring, "'Veal and ham, French beans, and uh, you forget the stuffing, Polly.' With an unearthly cock of his venerable eye, Mr. Guppy and Mr. Jobling give the like order. Three pint-pots of half-and-half half are superadded. Quickly the waitress returns, bearing what is apparently a model of the Tower of Babel, but what is really a pile of plates and flat tin dish-covers. Mr. Smallweed, approving of what is set before him, conveys intelligent benignity into his ancient eye, and winks upon her. Then, amid a constant coming in and going out, and running about, and a clatter of crockery, and a rumbling up and down of the machine which brings the nice cuts from the kitchen, and a shrill crying for more nice cuts down the speaking-pipe, and a shrill reckoning of the cost of nice cuts that have been disposed of, and a general flush and steam of hot joints, cut and uncut, and a considerably heated atmosphere in which the soiled knives and tablecloths seem to break out spontaneously into eruptions of grease and blotches of beer, the legal triumvirate appease their appetites. Mr. Jobling is buttoned up closer than mere adornment might require. His hat presents at the rims a peculiar appearance of a glistening nature, as if it had been a favourite snail promenade. The same phenomenon is visible on some parts of his coat, and particularly at the seams. He has the faded appearance of a gentleman in embarrassed circumstances. Even his light whiskers droop with something of a shabby air. His appetite is so vigorous that it suggests spare living for some little time back. He makes such a speedy end of his plate of veal and ham, bringing it to a close while his companions are yet midway in theirs, that Mr. Guppy proposes another. "'Thank you, Guppy,' says Mr. Jobling. "'I really don't know but what I will take another.' Another being brought, he falls to, with great good will. Mr. Guppy takes silent notice of him at intervals, until he is halfway through this second plate, and stops to take an enjoying pull at his pint-pot of half-and-half, also renewed, and stretches out his legs, and rubs his hands. Beholding him in which glow of contentment, Mr. Guppy says, "'You are a man again, Tony.' "'Well, not quite yet,' says Mr. Jobling. "'Say, just born.' "'Will you take any other vegetables—grass, peas, summer cabbage?' "'Thank you, Guppy,' says Mr. Jobling. "'I really don't know but what I will take summer cabbage.' Order given, with the sarcastic addition from Mr. Smallweed of, "'Without slugs, Polly,' and cabbage produced. "'I'm growing up, Guppy,' says Mr. Jobling, plying his knife and fork with a relishing steadiness. "'Glad to hear it,' 
"'In fact, I've just turned into my teens,' says Mr. Jobling. He says no more until he has performed his task, which he achieves as Messrs. Guppy and Smallweed finish theirs, thus getting over the ground in excellent style, and beating those two gentlemen easily by a veal and ham and a cabbage. "'Now, Small,' says Mr. Guppy, "'what would you recommend about pastry?' "'Marrow puddings,' says Mr. Smallweed instantly. "'Aye, aye,' cries Mr. Jobling, with an arch look. "'You're there, are you? Thank you, Mr. Guppy. I don't know but what I will take a marrow pudding.' Three marrow puddings being produced, Mr. Jobling adds in a pleasant humour that he is coming of age fast. To these succeed, by command of Mr. Smallweed, three Cheshire's, and to those three small rums. This apex of the entertainment happily reached, Mr. Jobling puts up his legs on the carpeted seat, having his own side of the box to himself, leans against the wall, and says, "'I'm grown up now, Guppy. I've arrived at maturity.' "'What do you think now?' says Mr. Guppy. "'About—' "'You don't mind, Smallweed?' "'Not the least in the world. I've the pleasure of drinking his good health.' "'Sir, to you,' says Mr. Smallweed. "'I was saying, what do you think now,' pursues Mr. Guppy, "'of enlisting?' "'Why, what I may think after dinner,' returns Mr. Jobling, "'is one thing, my dear Guppy. What I may think before dinner is another thing. Still, even after dinner, I ask myself the question, what am I to do? How am I to live? Ill found manger, you know.' says Mr. Jobling, pronouncing that word as if he meant a necessary fixture in an English stable. "'Ill foe manger. That's a French saying. And mangering is as necessary to me as it is to a Frenchman. Or more so.' Mr. Smallweed is decidedly of opinion. "'Much more so.' "'If any man had told me,' pursues Jobling, "'even so lately as when you and I had the frisk down in Lincolnshire, Guppy, and drove over to see that house at Castle Wold. Mr. Smallweed corrects him. Chesney Wold. Chesney Wold. I thank my honourable friend for that cheer. If any man had told me then that I should be as hard up at the present time as I literally find myself, I should have— Well, I should have pitched into him, says Mr. Jobling, taking a little rum and water with an air of desperate resignation. I should have let fly at his head. "'Still, Tony, you were on the wrong side of the post, then,' remonstrates Mr. Guppy. "'You were talking about nothing else in the gig.' "'Guppy,' says Mr. Jobling, "'I will not deny it. I was on the wrong side of the post, but I trusted to things coming round.' That very popular trust in flat things coming round, not in their being beaten round, or worked round, but in their coming round, as though a lunatic should trust in the world's coming triangular. "'I had confident expectations that things would come round and be all square,' says Mr. Jobbing, with some vagueness of expression, and perhaps of meaning, too. "'And I was disappointed. They never did. And when it came to creditors, making rows at the office—' and to people that the office dealt with, making complaints about dirty trifles of borrowed money, why, there was an end of that connection. 
and of any new professional connection too, for if I was to give a reference to-morrow, it would be mentioned and would sew me up. Then what's a fellow to do? I've been keeping out of the way, and living cheap down about the market gardens, but what's the use of living cheap when you've got no money? You might as well live dear. Better, Mr. Smallweed thinks. Certainly. It's the fashionable way, and fashion and whiskers have been my weaknesses. I don't care who knows it, says Mr. Jobling. They are great weaknesses. Damn, sir, they are great. Well, proceeds Mr. Jobling, after a defiant visit to his rum and water, what can a fellow do, I ask you, but enlist? Mr. Guppy comes more fully into the conversation to state what, in his opinion, a fellow can do. His manner is the gravely impressive manner of a man who has not committed himself in life otherwise than as he has become the victim of a tender sorrow of the heart. "'Jobling,' says Mr. Guppy, "'myself and our mutual friend Smallweed,' Mr. Smallweed modestly observes, "'gentlemen both,' and drinks, "'have had a little conversation on this matter more than once since you—' "'Say, got the sack?' cries Mr. Jobling bitterly. "'Say it, Guppy. You mean it.' "'Now, left the inn,' Mr. Smallweed delicately suggests. "'Since you left the inn, Joblin,' says Mr. Guppy, "'and I have mentioned to our mutual friend Smallweed a plan I have lately thought of proposing. You know Snagsby, the stationer?' "'I know there is such a stationer,' returns Mr. Jobling. "'He was not ours.' and I'm not acquainted with him. "'He is ours, Joblin, and I am acquainted with him,' Mr. Guppy retorts. "'Well, sir, I have lately become better acquainted with him through some accidental circumstances that have made me a visitor of his in private life. Those circumstances it is not necessary to offer in argument. They may, or they may not, have some reference to a subject which may, or may not, have cast its shadow on my existence. As it is Mr. Guppy's perplexing way, with boastful misery, to tempt his particular friends into this subject, and the moment they touch it, to turn on them with that trenchant severity about the cords and the human mind, both Mr. Jobling and Mr. Smallweed decline the pitfall by remaining silent. "'Such things may be,' repeats Mr. Guppy. "'Or they may not be. They are no part of the case. It is enough to mention that both Mr. and Mrs. Snagsby are very willing to oblige me, and that Snagsby has, in busy times, a good deal of copying work to give out. He has all Tulkinghorns, and an excellent business besides. I believe if our mutual friend Smallweed were put into the box, he could prove this.' Mr. Smallweed nods, and appears greedy to be sworn. "'Now, gentlemen of the jury,' says Mr. Guppy, "'I mean, now, Joblin, you may say this is a poor prospect of a living, granted, but it's better than nothing, and better than enlistment. You want time. There must be time for these late affairs to blow over. You might live through it on much worse terms than by writing for Snagsby.' Mr. Jobling is about to interrupt, when the sagacious Smallweed checks him with a dry cough, and the words, "'Em, Shakespeare!' 
"'There are two branches to this subject, Jobling,' says Mr. Guppy. "'That is the first. I'll come to the second. "'You know Crook, the Chancellor, across the lane. "'Come, Jobling,' says Mr. Guppy, in his encouraging cross-examination tone, "'I think you know Crook, the Chancellor, across the lane.' "'I know him by sight,' says Mr. Jobling. "'You know him by sight? Very well.' "'And you know little Flight?' "'Everybody knows her,' says Mr. Jobling. "'Everybody knows her. Very well. "'Now, it has been one of my duties of late "'to pay Flight a certain weekly allowance, "'deducting from it the amount of her weekly rent, "'which I have paid, in consequence of instructions I have received, "'to Crook himself, regularly in her presence.' "'This has brought me into communication with Crook, "'and into a knowledge of his house and his habits. "'I know he has a room to let. "'You may live there at a very low charge under any name you like, "'as quietly as if you were a hundred miles off. "'He'll ask no questions, and would accept you as a tenant a word from me, "'before the clock strikes, if you chose. "'And I'll tell you another thing, Jobling,' says Mr. Guppy, "'who has suddenly lowered his voice and become familiar again.' "'He is an extraordinary old chap, "'always rummaging among a litter of papers "'and grubbing away at teaching himself to read and write, "'without getting on a bit, as it seems to me. "'He is a most extraordinary old chap, sir. "'I don't know but what it might be worth a feller's while "'to look him up a bit.' "'You don't mean,' Mr. Jobling begins, "'I mean,' returns Mr. Guppy, "'shrugging his shoulders with becoming modesty, "'that I can't make him out. "'I appeal to our mutual friend Smallweed "'whether he has or has not heard me remark "'that I can't make him out.' "'Mr. Smallweed bears the concise testimony. "'A few. "'I have seen something of the profession "'and something of life, Tony,' says Mr. Guppy, "'and it's seldom I can't make a man out, more or less. "'But such an old card as this, so deep,' "'so sly and secret, though I don't believe he is ever sober, I never came across. "'Now, he must be precious old, you know, and he has not a soul about him, "'and he is reported to be immensely rich. "'And whether he is a smuggler, or a receiver, or an unlicensed pawnbroker, "'or a money-lender, all of which I thought likely at different times, "'it might pay you to knock up a sort of knowledge of him.' "'I don't see why you shouldn't go in for it, when everything else suits.' Mr. Jobling, Mr. Guppy, and Mr. Smallweed all lean their elbows on the table, and their chins upon their hands, and look at the ceiling. After a time they all drink, slowly lean back, put their hands in their pockets, and look at one another. "'If I had the energy I once possessed, Tony,' "'says Mr. Guppy, with a sigh. "'But there are chords in the human mind.' "'Expressing the remainder of the desolate sentiment in rum and water, "'Mr. Guppy concludes by resigning the adventure to Tony Jobling, "'and informing him that during the vacation, and while things are slack, "'his purse, as far as three or four or even five pound goes, "'will be at his disposal. "'For never shall it be said,' Mr. Guppy adds with emphasis, "'at William Guppy, "'turned his back upon his friend. "'The latter part of the proposal is so directly to the purpose "'that Mr. Jobling says with emotion, "'Guppy, my trump, your fist.' 
Mr. Guppy presents it, saying, "'Jobbling, my boy, there it is.' Mr. Jobbling returns, "'Guppy, we have been pals now for some years.' Mr. Guppy replies, "'Jobbling, we have.' They then shake hands, and Mr. Jobbling adds in a feeling manner, "'Thank you, Guppy. I don't know but what I will take another glass, for old acquaintance' sake.' "'Crook's last lodger died there,' observes Mr. Guppy in an incidental way. "'Did he, though?' says Mr. Jobling. "'There was a verdict. Accidental death. You don't mind that?' "'No,' says Mr. Jobling. "'I don't mind it. But he might as well have died somewhere else. It's devilish odd that he need to go and die at my place.' Mr. Jobling quite resents this liberty, several times returning to it with such remarks as— there are places enough to die in, I should think. Or, he wouldn't have liked my dying at his place, I dare say. However, the compact being virtually made, Mr. Guppy proposes to dispatch the trusty Smallweed to ascertain if Mr. Crook is at home, as in that case they may complete the negotiation without delay. Mr. Jobbling approving, Smallweed puts himself under the tall hat, and conveys it out of the dining-rooms in the Guppy manner. He soon returns with the intelligence that Mr. Crook is at home, and that he has seen him through the shop-door, sitting in the back premises, sleeping like one o'clock. "'Then I'll pay,' says Mr. Guppy, "'and we'll go and see him. Small, what will it be?' Mr. Smallweed, compelling the attendance of the waitress with one hitch of his eyelash, instantly replies as follows. Four veals and hams is three, and four potatoes is three and four, and one summer cabbage is three and six, and three marrows is four and six, and six breads is five, and three cheshires is five and three, and four half pints of half and half is six and three, and four small rums is eight and three, and three pollies is eight and six. Eight and six in half a sovereign, Polly, and eighteen pence out. Not at all excited by these stupendous calculations, Smallweed dismisses his friends with a cool nod, and remains behind to take a little admiring notice of Polly, as opportunity may serve, and to read the daily papers, which are so very large in proportion to himself, shorn of his hat, that when he holds up the times to run his eye over the columns, he seems to have retired for the night, and to have disappeared under the bedclothes. Mr. Guppy and Mr. Jobbling repair to the rag-and-bottle shop, where they find Crook still sleeping like one o'clock that is to say, breathing stertorously, with his chin upon his breast, and quite insensible to any external sounds, or even to gentle shaking. On the table beside him, among the usual lumber, stand an empty gin-bottle and a glass. The unwholesome air is so stained with this liquor, that even the green eyes of the cat upon her shelf, as they open and shut and glimmer on the visitors, look drunk. "'Hold up here,' says Mr. Guppy, giving the relaxed figure of the old man another shake. "'Mr. Crook!' "'Hello, sir.' But it would seem as easy to wake a bundle of old clothes with a spirituous heat smouldering in it. "'Did you ever see such a stupor as he falls into, between drink and sleep?' says Mr. Guppy. "'If this is his regular sleep,' returns Jobling, rather alarmed, "'it'll last a long time one of these days, I'm thinking.' "'It's always more like a fit than a nap,' says Mr. Guppy, shaking him again. "'Hello, your lordship.' "'Why, he might be robbed fifty times over. "'Open your eyes!' After much ado, he opens them, but without appearing to see his visitors or any other objects. 
though he crosses one leg on another, and folds his hands, and several times closes and opens his parched lips, he seems to all intents and purposes as insensible as before. "'He is alive, at any rate,' says Mr. Guppy. "'How are you, my Lord Chancellor? I brought a friend of mine, sir, on a little matter of business.' The old man still sits, often smacking his dry lips without the least consciousness. After some minutes he makes an attempt to rise. They help him up, and he staggers against the wall, and stares at them. "'How do you do, Mr. Crook?' says Mr. Guppy, in some discomfiture. "'How do you do, sir? You are looking charming, Mr. Crook. I hope you are pretty well.' The old man, in aiming a purposeless blow at Mr. Guppy, or at nothing, feebly swings himself round, and comes with his face against the wall. So he remains for a minute or two, heaped up against it, and then staggers down the shop to the front door. The air, the movement in the court, a lapse of time, or the combination of these things, recovers him. He comes back pretty steadily, adjusting his fur cap on his head, and looking keenly at them. "'Your servant, gentlemen, I've been dozing. Hi, I'm hard awake, odd times.' "'Rather so, indeed, sir.' responds Mr. Guppy. "'What? You've been a-trying to do it, have you?' says the suspicious crook. "'Only a little,' Mr. Guppy explains. The old man's eye resting on the empty bottle, he takes it up, examines it, and slowly tilts it upside down. "'I say,' he cries, like the hobgoblin in the story, "'somebody's been making free here.' "'I assure you we found it so,' says Mr. Guppy. "'Would you allow me to get it filled for you?' "'Yes, certainly I would,' cries Crook in high glee. "'Certainly I would. Don't mention it. Get it filled next door. Sol's Arms. The Lord Chancellor's fourteen penny. Bless you. They know me.' He so presses the empty bottle upon Mr. Guppy, that that gentleman, with a nod to his friend, accepts the trust, and hurries out, and hurries in again, with the bottle filled. The old man receives it in his arms like a beloved grandchild, and pats it tenderly. "'But, I say,' he whispers, with his eyes screwed up after tasting it, "'this ain't a Lord Chancellor's fourteen-penny. This is eighteen-penny.' "'I thought you might uh, like that better,' says Mr. Guppy. "'You're a nobleman, sir,' returns Crook, with another taste, and his hot breath seems to come towards them like a flame. "'You're a baron of the land.' Taking advantage of this auspicious moment, Mr. Guppy presents his friend under the impromptu name of Mr. Weevil, and states the object of their visit. Crook, with his bottle under his arm— he never gets beyond a certain point of either drunkenness or sobriety, takes time to survey his proposed lodger, and seems to approve of him. "'You'd like to see the room, young man,' he says. "'Ah, it's a good room. Been whitewashed, been cleaned down with soft soap and soda. Hi, it's worth twice the rent, letting alone my company when you want it, and such a cat to keep the mice away.' Commending the room after this manner, the old man takes them upstairs, where indeed they do find it cleaner than it used to be, and also containing some old articles of furniture which he has dug up from his inexhaustible stores. 
the terms are easily concluded, for the Lord Chancellor cannot be hard on Mr. Guppy, associated as he is with Kenge and Carboy, Jarndyce and Jarndyce, and other famous claims on his professional consideration, and it is agreed that Mr. Weevil shall take possession on the morrow. Mr. Weevil and Mr. Guppy then repair to Cook's Court, Cursiter Street, where the personal introduction of the former to Mr. Snagsby is effected, and, more important, the vote and interest of Mrs. Snagsby are secured. They then report progress to the eminent Smallweed, waiting at the office in his tall hat for that purpose, and separate, Mr. Guppy explaining that he would terminate his little entertainment by standing treat at the play, but that there are chords in the human mind which would render it a hollow mockery. On the morrow, in the dusk of evening, Mr. Weevil modestly appears at Crook's, by no means incommoded with luggage, and establishes himself in his new lodging, where the two eyes and the shutters stare at him in his sleep, as if they were full of wonder. On the following day, Mr. Weevil, who is a handy good-for-nothing kind of young fellow, borrows a needle and thread of Miss Flight, and a hammer of his landlord, and goes to work devising apologies for window-curtains, and knocking up apologies for shelves, and hanging up his two teacups milk-pot, and crockery sundries, on a pennyworth of little hooks, like a shipwrecked sailor making the best of it. But what Mr. Weevil prizes most, of all his few possessions, next after his light whiskers, for which he has an attachment that only whiskers can awaken in the breast of man, is a choice collection of copper-plate impressions from that truly national work, The Divinities of Albion, or Galaxy Gallery of British Beauty, representing ladies of title and fashion in every variety of smirk that art, combined with capital, is capable of producing. With these magnificent portraits, unworthily confined in a bandbox during his seclusion among the market-gardens, he decorates his apartment, and as the galaxy gallery of British beauty wears every variety of fancy dress, plays every variety of musical instrument, fondles every variety of dog, ogles every variety of prospect, and is backed up by every variety of flower-pot and balustrade, the result is very imposing. But fashion is Mr. Weevil's, as it was Tony Jobling's, weakness. To borrow yesterday's paper from the Sol's arms of an evening, and read about the brilliant and distinguished meteors that are shooting across the fashionable sky in every direction, is unspeakable consolation to him. To know what member of what brilliant and distinguished circle accomplished the brilliant and distinguished feat of joining it yesterday, or contemplates the no less brilliant and distinguished feat of leaving it to-morrow, gives him a thrill of joy. To be informed what the Galaxy Gallery of British Beauty is about, and means to be about, and what galaxy marriages are on the tapis, and what galaxy rumours are in circulation, is to become acquainted with the most glorious destinies of mankind. Mr. Weevil reverts from this intelligence to the galaxy portraits implicated, and seems to know the originals, and to be known of them. For the rest, he is a quiet lodger, full of handy shifts and devices, as before mentioned, able to cook and clean for himself as well as to carpenter, and developing social inclinations after the shades of evening have fallen on the court. At those times, when he is not visited by Mr. Guppy, or by a small light in his likeness, quenched in a dark hat, he comes out of his dull room, where he has inherited the deal wilderness of desk, bespattered with a rain of ink, and talks to Crook, or is very free, as they call it, in the court, commendingly, with any one disposed for conversation. Wherefore, Mrs. Piper, who leads the court, is impelled to offer two remarks to Mrs. Perkins. Firstly, that if her Johnny was to have whiskers— she could wish him to be identically like that young man's, 
and secondly, mark my words, Mrs. Perkins, ma'am, and don't you be surprised, Lord bless you, if that young man comes in at last for old Crook's money. End of chapter 20《Chapter Twenty One of Bleak House》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty One The Smallweed Family. In a rather ill favoured and ill savoured neighbourhood, though one of its rising grounds bears the name of Mount Pleasant, the elfin Smallweed, christened Bartholomew, and known on the domestic hearth as Bart, passes that limited portion of his time on which the office and its contingencies have no claim. He dwells in a little narrow street, always solitary, shady, and sad, closely bricked in on all sides like a tomb. But where there yet lingers the stump of an old forest tree, whose flavour is about as fresh and natural as the smallweed smack of youth— there has been only one child in the Smallweed family for several generations. Little old men and women there have been, but no child, until Mr. Smallweed's grandmother, now living, became weak in her intellect, and fell, for the first time, into a childish state. With such infantine graces as a total want of observation, memory, understanding, and interest, and an eternal disposition to fall asleep over the fire, and into it, Mr. Smallweed's grandmother has undoubtedly brightened the family. Mr. Smallweed's grandfather is likewise of the party. He is in a helpless condition as to his lower, and nearly so as to his upper, limbs, but his mind is unimpaired. It holds, as well as it ever held, the first four rules of arithmetic, and a certain small collection of the hardest facts. In respect of ideality, reverence, wonder, and other such phrenological attributes, it is no worse off than it used to be. Everything that Mr. Smallweed's grandfather ever put away in his mind was a grub at first, and is a grub at last. In all his life he has never bred a single butterfly. The father of this pleasant grandfather, of the neighbourhood of Mount Pleasant, was a horny-skinned, two-legged, money-getting species of spider, who spun webs to catch unwary flies, and retired into holes until they were entrapped. The name of this old pagan's god was Compound Interest. He lived for it, married it, died of it. Meeting with a heavy loss in an honest little enterprise in which all the loss was intended to have been on the other side, he broke something, something necessary to his existence, therefore it couldn't have been his heart, and made an end of his career. As his character was not good, and he had been bred at a charity school in a complete course, according to question and answer of those ancient people, the Amorites and Hittites, he was frequently quoted as an example of the failure of education. His spirit shone through his son, to whom he had always preached of going out early in life, and whom he had made a clerk in a sharp scrivener's office at twelve years old. There the young gentleman improved his mind, which was of a lean and anxious character, and developing the family gifts, gradually elevated himself into the discounting profession. Going out early in life, and marrying late, as his father had done before him, he too begat a lean and anxious-minded son, 
who in his turn, going out early in life and marrying late, became the father of Bartholomew and Judith Smallreed, twins. During the whole time consumed in the slow growth of this family tree, the house of Smallreed, always early to go out and late to marry, has strengthened itself in its practical character, has discarded all amusements, discountenanced all story-books, fairy-tales, fictions, and fables, and banished all levities whatsoever. Hence the gratifying fact that it has had no child born to it, and that the complete little men and women whom it has produced have been observed to bear a likeness to old monkeys, with something depressing on their minds. At the present time, in the dark little parlour, certain feet below the level of the street, a grim, hard, uncouth parlour, only ornamented with the coarsest of baize table-covers, and the hardest of sheet-iron tea-trays, and offering in its decorative character no bad allegorical representation of Grandfather Smallweed's mind. Seated in two black horsehair porter's chairs, one on each side of the fireplace, the superannuated Mr. and Mrs. Smallweed while away the rosy hours. On the stove are a couple of trivets for the pots and kettles, which it is Grandfather Smallweed's usual occupation to watch, and projecting from the chimney-piece between them is a sort of brass gallows for roasting, which he also superintends when it is in action. Under the venerable Mr. Smallweed's seat, and guarded by his spindle legs, is a drawer in his chair, reported to contain property to a fabulous amount. Beside him is a spare cushion with which he is always provided, in order that he may have something to throw at the venerable partner of his respected age, whenever she makes an allusion to money, a subject on which he is particularly sensitive. "'And where's Bart?' Grandfather Smallweed inquires of Judy, Bart's twin sister. "'He ain't come in yet,' says Judy. "'It's his tea-time, isn't it?' "'No.' "'How much do you mean to say it wants, then?' Ten minutes.' "'Hey?' Ten minutes,' loud on the part of Judy. "'How?' says Grandfather Smallweed. Ten minutes.' Grandmother Smallweed, who has been mumbling and shaking her head at the trivets, hearing figures mentioned, connects them with money, and screeches like a horrible old parrot without any plumage. Ten, ten pound notes. Grandfather Smallweed immediately throws the cushion at her. Drat you be quiet, says the good old man. The effect of this act of ejaculation is twofold. It not only doubles up Mrs. Smallweed's head against the side of her porter's chair, and causes her to present, when extricated by her granddaughter, a highly unbecoming state of cap, but the necessary exertion recoils on Mr. Smallweed himself, whom it throws back into his porter's chair like a broken puppet. The excellent old gentleman, being at these times a mere clothes-bag, with a black skull-cap on the top of it, does not present a very animated appearance, until he has undergone the two operations at the hands of his granddaughter, of being shaken up like a great bottle, and poked and punched like a great bolster. Some indication of a neck being developed in him by these means, he and the sharer of his life's evening, again fronting one another in their two porters' chairs, like a couple of sentinels long forgotten on their post by the black sergeant, Death. Judy, the twin, is worthy company for these associates. She is so indubitably sister to Mr. Smallweed, the younger, 
that the two kneaded into one would hardly make a young person of average proportions, while she so happily exemplifies the before-mentioned family likeness to the monkey tribe, that attired in a spangled robe and cap, she might walk about the table and, on the top of a barrel-organ, without exciting much remark as an unusual specimen. Under existing circumstances, however, she is dressed in a plain, spare gown of brown stuff. Judy never owned a doll, never heard of Cinderella, never played at any game. She once or twice fell into children's company when she was about ten years old, but the children couldn't get on with Judy, and Judy couldn't get on with them. She seemed like an animal of another species, and there was instinctive repugnance on both sides. It is very doubtful whether Judy knows how to laugh. She has so rarely seen the thing done that the probabilities are strong the other way. Of anything like a youthful laugh, she certainly can have no conception. If she were to try one, she would find her teeth in her way, modelling that action of her face, as she has unconsciously modelled all its other expressions, on her pattern of sordid age. Such is Judy. And her twin brother couldn't wind up a top for his life. He knows no more of Jack the Giant-Killer, or of Sinbad the Sailor, than he knows the people in the stars. He could as soon play at leapfrog, or at cricket, as change into a cricket or a frog himself. But he is so much the better off than his sister, that on his narrow world of fact an opening has dawned into such broader regions as lie within the ken of Mr. Guppy. Hence his admiration and his emulation of that shining enchanter. Judy, with a gong-like clash and clatter, sets up one of the sheet-iron tea-trays on the table and arranges cups and saucers. The bread she puts on in an iron basket, and the butter, and not much of it, in a small pewter plate. Grandfather Smallweed looks hard after the tea as it is served out, and asks Judy where the girl is. "'Charlie, do you mean?' says Judy. "'Hey!' from Grandfather Smallweed. "'Charlie, do you mean?' This touches a spring in Grandmother Swarweed, who, chuckling as usual at the trivets, cries, "'Over the water, Charlie, over the water, Charlie, over the water, over the water to Charlie, Charlie, over the water, over the water to Charlie,' and becomes quite energetic about it. Grandfather looks at the cushion, but has not sufficiently recovered his late exertion. Huh? he says when there is silence. "'If that's her name, she eats a deal. It would be better to allow her for a keep.' Judy, with her brother's wink, shakes her head and purses up her mouth into no without saying it. "'No,' returns the old man. "'Why not?' "'She'd want sixpence a day, and we can do it for less,' says Judy. "'Sure?' Judy answers with a nod of deepest meaning, and calls, as she scrapes the butter on the loaf with every precaution against waste, and cuts it into slices. "'You, Charlie, where are you?' Timidly obedient to the summons, a little girl in a rough apron and a large bonnet, with her hands covered with soap and water and a scrubbing brush in one of them, appears and curtsies. "'What work are you about now?' says Judy making an ancient snap at her like a very sharp old bell-dame. "'I'm a-cleaning the upstairs back room, miss,' replies Charlie. "'Mind you do it thoroughly, and don't loiter. Shirking won't do for me. Make haste. Go along,' cries Judy with a stamp upon the ground. "'You girls are more trouble than you're worth by half.' 
On this severe matron, as she returns to her task of scraping the butter and cutting the bread, falls the shadow of her brother, looking in at the window, for whom knife and loaf in hand she opens the street door. "'Ay, ay, Bart,' says Grandfather Smallweed, "'here you are, eh?' "'Here I am,' says Bart. "'Been along with your friend again, Bart?' Small nods. "'Dining at his expense, Bart?' Small nods again. "'That's right. Live at his expense as much as you can, and take warning by his foolish example. That's the use of such a friend. The only use you can put him to,' says the venerable sage. His grandson, without receiving this good counsel as dutifully as he might, honours it with all such acceptance as may lie in a slight wink and a nod, and takes a chair at the tea-table. The four old faces then hover over teacups, like a company of ghastly cherubim, Mrs. Smallweed perpetually twitching her head and chattering at the trivets, and Mr. Smallweed requiring to be repeatedly shaken up like a large black draught. "'Yes, yes,' says the good old gentleman, reverting to his lesson of wisdom. "'That's such advice as your father would have given you, Bart. You never saw your father. More's the pity. He was my true son.' Whether it is intended to be conveyed that he was particularly pleasant to look at, on that account, does not appear. "'He was my true son,' repeats the old gentleman, folding his bread and butter on his knee. "'A good accountant, and died fifteen years ago.' Mrs. Smallweed, following her usual instinct, breaks out with, "'Fifteen hundred pound! Fifteen hundred pound in a black box! Fifteen hundred pound locked up! Fifteen hundred pound put away and hid!' Her worthy husband, setting aside his bread and butter, immediately discharges the cushion at her crushes her against the side of her chair, and falls back in his own, overpowered. His appearance, after visiting Mrs. Smallweed with one of these admonitions, is particularly impressive, and not wholly prepossessing. Firstly, because the exertion generally twists his black skull-cap over one eye, and gives him an air of goblin rakishness. Secondly, because he mutters violent imprecations against Mrs. Smallweed. And thirdly, because the contrast between those powerful expressions and his powerless figure is suggestive of a baleful old malignant, who would be very wicked if he could. All this, however, is so common in the Smallweed family circle, that it produces no impression. The old gentleman is merely shaken, and has his internal feathers beaten up, the cushion is restored to its usual place beside him, and the old lady, perhaps with her cap adjusted and perhaps not, is planted in her chair again, ready to be bowled down like a ninepin. Some time elapses in the present instance, before the old gentleman is sufficiently cool to resume his discourse, and even then he mixes it up with several edifying expletives addressed to the unconscious partner of his bosom, who holds communication with nothing on earth but the trivets, as thus. "'If your father, Bart, had lived longer, he might have been worth a deal of money, you brimstone chatterer. But, just as he was beginning to build up the house that he had been making the foundations for through many a year, you jade of a magpie, Jack Dor and Paul Perrot, what do you mean? He took ill, and died of a low fever, always being a sparing and a spare man, full of business care. 
I should like to throw a cat at you instead of a cushion, and I will too if you make such a confounded fool of yourself. And your mother, who was a prudent woman as dry as a chip, just dwindled away, like Touchwood, after you and Judy were born. You are an old pig. You are a brimstone pig. You are a head of swine. Judy, not interested in what she has so often heard, begins to collect in the basin various tributary streams of tea from the bottoms of cups and saucers, and from the bottom of the teapot for the little charwoman's evening meal. In like manner she gets together, in the iron bread-basket, as many outside fragments and worn-down heels of loaves as the rigid economy of the house has left in existence. "'But your father and me were partners, Bart,' says the old gentleman. "'And when I'm gone, you and Judy will have all there is. It's rare for you both that you went out early in life, Judy to the flower business and you to the law. You don't want to spend it. You'll get your living without it, and put more to it. When I'm gone, Judy will go back to the flower business, and you'll still stick to the law.' One might infer from Judy's appearance that her business rather lay with the thorns than the flowers, but she has in her time been apprenticed to the art and mystery of artificial flower-making. A close observer might perhaps detect both in her eye and her brother's, when their venerable grandsire anticipates his being gone, some little impatience to know when he may be going, and some resentful opinion that it is time he went. "'Now, if everybody has done—' says Judy, completing her preparations. "'I'll have that girl into her tea. She would never leave off as she took it by herself in her kitchen.' Charlie is accordingly introduced, and under a heavy fire of eyes, sits down to a basin, and a druidical ruin of bread and butter. In the active superintendence of this young person, Judy Smallweed appears to attain a perfectly geological age, and to date from the remotest periods. Her systematic manner of flying at her, and pouncing on her, with or without pretence, whether or no, is wonderful, evincing an accomplishment in the art of girl-driving, seldom reached by the oldest practitioners. "'Now, don't stare about you all the afternoon,' cries Judy, shaking her head and stamping her foot as she happens to catch the glance which has been previously sounding the basin of tea. "'But take your victuals, and get back to your work.' "'Yes, miss,' says Charlie. "'Don't say yes,' returns Miss Smallweed. "'For I know what you girls are. Do it without saying it, and then I may begin to believe you.' Charlie swallows a great gulp of tea, in token of submission, and so disperses the druidical ruins that Miss Smallweed charges her not to gormandise, which, in you girls, she observes, is disgusting. Charlie might find some more difficulty in meeting her views on the general subject of girls, but for a knock at the door. "'See who it is.' "'And don't chew when you open it,' cries Judy. The object of her attentions withdrawing for the purpose, Miss Smallweed takes that opportunity of jumbling the remainder of the bread and butter together, and launching two or three dirty teacups into the ebb-tide of the basin of tea, as a hint that she considers the eating and drinking terminated. "'Now, who is it, and what's wanted?' says the snappish Judy. "'It is one Mr. George, it appears.' Without other announcement or ceremony, Mr. George walks in. "'Phew!' says Mr. George. "'You are hot here. Always a fire, eh? Well, 
Perhaps you do right to get used to one. Mr. George makes the latter remark to himself as he nods to Grandfather Smallweed. Oh, it's you, cries the old gentleman. How de do? How de do? Midland, replies Mr. George, taking a chair. Your granddaughter I have had the honour of seeing before. My service to you, miss. This is my grandson, says Grandfather Smallweed. You haven't seen him before. He is in the law, and not much at home. My service to him, too. He is like his sister. He is very like his sister. He is devilish like his sister, says Mr. George, laying a great and not altogether complimentary stress on his last adjective. And how does the world use you, Mr. George? Grandfather Smallweed inquires, slowly rubbing his legs. Pretty much as usual, like a football. He is a swarthy brown man of fifty, well-made and good-looking, with crisp dark hair, bright eyes, and a broad chest. His sinewy and powerful hands, as sunburnt as his face, have evidently been used to a pretty rough life. What is curious about him is that he sits forward on his chair, as if he were, from long habit, allowing space for some dress or accoutrements that he has altogether laid aside. His step, too, is measured and heavy, and would go well with a weighty clash and jingle of spurs. He is close-shaved now, but his mouth is set as if his upper lip had been for years familiar with a great moustache and his manner of occasionally laying the open palm of his broad brown hand upon it is to the same effect. Altogether, one might guess Mr. George to have been a trooper once upon a time. A special contrast Mr. George makes to the Smallweed family. Trooper was never yet billeted upon a household more unlike him. It is a broadsword to an oyster-knife. His developed figure and their stunted forms— his large manner filling any amount of room, and their little, narrow, pinched ways, his sounding voice and their sharp, spare tones, are in the strongest and the strangest opposition. As he sits in the middle of the grim parlour, leaning a little forward, with his hands upon his thighs and his elbows squared, he looks as though, if he remained there long, he would absorb into himself the whole family and the whole four-roomed house, extra little back kitchen and all. "'Do you rub your legs to rub life into them?' he asks of Grandfather Smallweed, after looking round the room. "'Why, it's partly a habit, Mr. George, and, yes, it partly helps the circulation,' he replies. "'The circulation,' repeats Mr. George, folding his arms upon his chest, and seeming to become two sizes larger. "'Not much of that, I should think.' "'Surely I am old, Mr. George,' says Grandfather Smallweed. "'But I can carry my years. I'm older than her,' nodding at his wife. "'And see what she is. You're a brimstone chatterer,' with a sudden revival of his late hostility. "'Unlucky old soul,' says Mr. George, turning his head in that direction. "'Don't scold the old lady. Look at her here.' with a poor cap half off her head, and a poor hair all in a muddle. Hold up, ma'am. That's better. There we are. Think of your mother, Mr. Smallweed, says Mr. George, coming back to his seat from assisting her, if your wife ain't enough. 
"'I suppose you were an excellent son, Mr. George,' the old man hints with a leer. The colour of Mr. George's face rather deepens as he replies, "'Why, no, I wasn't.' "'I am astonished at it.' "'So am I. I ought to have been a good son. I think I meant to have been one. But I wasn't. I was a thundering bad son. That's the long and the short of it and never was a credit to anybody. "'Surprising!' cries the old man. "'However,' Mr. George resumes, "'the less said about it, the better now. Come, you know the agreement. Always a pipe out of the two months' interest. Bosh! It's all correct. You needn't be afraid to order the pipe. Here's the new bill, and here's the two months' interest money, and a devil and all of a scrape it is to get it together in my business. Mr. George sits with his arms folded, consuming the family in the parlour, while Grandfather Smallweed is assisted by Judy to two black leathern cases out of a locked bureau, in one of which he secures the document he has just received, and from the other takes another similar document, which he hands to Mr. George, who twists it up for a pipe-light. As the old man inspects, through his glasses, every upstroke and downstroke of both documents before he releases them from their leathern prison, and as he counts the money three times over, and requires Judy to say every word she utters at least twice, and is as tremulously slow of speech and action as it is possible to be, this business is a long time in progress. When it is quite concluded, and not before, he disengages his ravenous eyes and fingers from it, and answers Mr. George's last remark by saying, "'Afraid to order the pipe? "'We are not so mercenary as that, sir. "'Judy, see directly to the pipe "'and the glass of cold brandy and water for Mr. George.' The sportive twins, who have been looking straight before them all this time, except when they have been engrossed by the black leathern cases, retire together, generally disdainful of the visitor, but leaving him to the old man, as two young cubs might leave a traveller to the parental bear. "'And there you sit, I suppose, all the day long, eh?' says Mr. George, with folded arms. "'Just so, just so,' the old man nods. "'And don't you occupy yourself at all?' "'I watch the fire, and the boiling, and the roasting.' "'When there is any.' says Mr. George, with great expression. "'Just so, when there is any.' "'Don't you read, or get read to?' The old man shakes his head with sharp, sly triumph. "'No, no, we have never been readers in our family. It don't pay. Stuff. Idleness. Folly. No, no.' "'There's not much to choose between your two states.' says the visitor, in a key too low for the old man's dull hearing, as he looks from him to the old woman and back again. "'I say,' in a louder voice, "'I hear you.' "'You'll sell me up at last, I suppose, when I am a day in arrear.' "'My dear friend,' cries Grandfather Smallweed, stretching out both hands to embrace him, "'Never, never, my dear friend.' "'But, my friend in the city, that I got to lend you the money, mm, he might.' "'Oh, you can't answer for him,' says Mr. George, finishing the inquiry in his lower key with the words, 
you lying old rascal my dear friend he is not to be depended on i wouldn't trust him he will have his bond my dear friend devil doubt him says mr george charley appearing with the tray on which are the pipe a small paper of tobacco and the brandy and water he asks her how do you come here you haven't got the family face i goes out to work sir returns charley the trooper if trooper he be or have been takes her bonnet off with a light touch for so strong a hand and pats her on the head you give the house almost a wholesome look it wants a bit of youth as much as it wants fresh air then he dismisses her lights his pipe and drinks to mr smallweed's friend in the city the one solitary flight of that esteemed old gentleman's imagination so you think he might be hard upon me eh i think he might i am afraid he would i have known him do it says grandfather smallweed incautiously twenty times incautiously because his stricken better half who has been dozing over the fire for some time is instantly aroused and jabbers twenty thousand pounds twenty twenty pound notes in a money-box twenty guineas twenty million twenty per cent twenty and is then cut short by the flying cushion which the visitor to whom this singular experiment appears to be a novelty snatches from her face as it crushes her in the usual manner you're a brimstone idiot you're a scorpion a brimstone scorpion you're a sweltering toad you're a chattering clattering broomstick witch that ought to be burnt gasps the old man prostrate in his chair my dear friend will you shake me up a little mr george who has been looking first at one of them and then at the other as if he were demented takes his venerable acquaintance by the throat on receiving this request and dragging him upright in his chair as easily as if he were a doll appears in two minds whether or no to shake all future power of cushioning out of him and shake him into his grave resisting the temptation but agitating him violently enough to make his head roll like a harlequin's he puts him smartly down in his chair again and adjusts his skull-cap with such a rub that the old man winks with both eyes for a minute afterwards oh lord gasps mr smallweed that'll do thank you my dear friend that'll do oh oh dear me i'm out of breath oh lord and mr smallweed says it not without evident apprehensions of his dear friend who still stands over him looming larger than ever the alarming presence however gradually subsides into its chair and falls to smoking in long puffs consoling itself with the philosophical reflection the name of your friend in the city begins with a d comrade and you're about right respecting the bond did you speak mr george inquires the old man the trooper shakes his head and leaning forward with his right elbow on his right knee and his pipe supported in that hand while his other hand resting on his left leg squares his left elbow into a martial manner continues to smoke meanwhile he looks at mr smallweed with grave attention and now and then fans the cloud of smoke away 
in order that he may see him the more clearly. "'I take it,' he says, making just as much and as little change in his position as will enable him to reach the glass to his lips with a round, full action, "'that I am the only man alive, or dead either, that gets the value of a pipe out of you.' "'Well,' returns the old man, "'It's true that I don't see company, Mr. George, and that I don't treat. I can't afford to it. But as you, in your pleasant way, made your pipe a condition—' "'Why, it's not for the value of it. That's no great thing. It was a fancy to get it out of you. To have something in for my money.' "'Ha! You're prudent.' "'Prudent, sir,' cries Grandfather Smallweed, rubbing his legs. "'Very. I always was.' Puff. "'It's a sure sign of my prudence that I ever found the way here.' Puff. "'Also that I am what I am.' Puff. "'I am well known to be prudent,' says Mr. George, composedly smoking. "'I rose in life that way.' "'Oh, don't be downhearted, sir. You may rise yet.' Mr. George laughs and drinks. "'Han't you no relations now?' asks Grandfather Smallweed, with a twinkle in his eyes. "'Who would pay off this little principal, or who would lend you a good name or two, that I could persuade my friend in the city to make you a further advance upon?' Two good names would be sufficient for my friend in the city. Hadn't you no such relations, Mr. George?' Mr. George, still composedly smoking, replies, "'If I had, I shouldn't trouble them. I've been trouble enough to my belongings in my day. It may be a very good sort of penitence in a vagabond who has wasted the best time of his life to go back then to decent people that he never was a credit to and live upon them.' but it's not my sort. The best kind of amends, then, for having gone away, is to keep away, in my opinion. "'That's natural affection, Mr. George,' hints Grandfather Smallweed. "'For two good names, hey?' says Mr. George, shaking his head and still composedly smoking. "'No, that's not my sort, either.' Grandfather Smallweed has been gradually sliding down in his chair since his last adjustment, and is now a bundle of clothes with a voice in it, calling for Judy. That hoory appearing shakes him up in the usual manner, and is charged by the old gentleman to remain near him, for he seems chary of putting his visitor to the trouble of repeating his late attentions. Ha! he observes when he is in trim again. "'If you could have traced out the captain, Mr. George, it would have been the making of you. If when you first came here, in consequence of our advertisement in the newspapers—when I say our, I'm alluding to the advertisements of my friend in the city, and one or two others who embark their capital in the same way, and are so friendly towards me as sometimes to give me a lift with my little pittance—' "'If at that time you could have helped us, Mr. George, it would have been the making of you.' "'I was willing enough to be made, as you call it,' says Mr. George, smoking not quite so placidly as before, 
for since the entrance of Judy he has been in some measure disturbed by a fascination, not of the admiring kind, which obliged him to look at her as she stands by her grandfather's chair. But, on the whole, I am glad I wasn't now. Why, Mr. George, in the name of Brimstone, why, says Grandfather Smallweed, with the plain appearance of exasperation, Brimstone apparently suggested by his eye lighting on Mrs. Smallweed in her slumber. For two reasons, comrade. And what two reasons, Mr. George? In the name of the— Of our friend in the city, suggests Mr. George, composedly drinking. Aye, if you like. What two reasons? In the first place, returns Mr. George, but still looking at Judy as if she being so old and so like her grandfather, it is indifferent which of the two he addresses. You gentlemen took me in. You advertised that Mr. Horden, Captain Horden, if you hold to the saying, once a captain, always a captain, was to hear of something to his advantage. Well, returns the old man shrilly and sharply, well, says Mr. George, smoking on, it wouldn't have been much to his advantage to have been clapped into prison by the whole bill and judgment trade of London. How do you know that? Some of his rich relations might have paid his debts or compounded for him. Besides, he had taken us in. He owed us immense sums all round. I would sooner have strangled him and had no return. If I sit here thinking of him, snarls the old man, holding up his impotent ten fingers, I want to strangle him now. And in a sudden access of fury, he throws the cushion at the unoffending Mrs. Smallweed, but it passes harmlessly on one side of her chair. "'I don't need to be told,' returns the trooper, taking his pipe from his lips for a moment, and carrying his eyes back from following the progress of the cushion to the pipe-bowl, which is burning low, that he carried on heavily and went to ruin. I have been at his right hand many a day, when he was charging upon ruin full gallop. I was with him when he was sick and well.' rich and poor. I laid this hand upon him after he had run through everything, and broken down everything beneath him, when he held a pistol to his head. "'I wish he had let it off,' says the benevolent old man, "'and blown his head into as many pieces as he owed pounds.' "'That would have been a smash indeed,' returns the trooper coolly. "'Anyway, he had been young, hopeful.' and handsome in the days gone by, and I am glad I never found him when he was neither, to lead to a result so much to his advantage. That's reason number one. "'I hope number two's as good,' snarls the old man. "'Why, no. It's more of a selfish reason. If I had found him, I must have gone to the other world to look. He was there.' "'How do you know he was there?' "'He wasn't here.' "'How do you know he wasn't here?' "'Don't lose your temper as well as your money,' says Mr. George, calmly knocking the ashes out of his pipe. "'He was drowned long before. I'm convinced of it. He went over a ship's side. Whether intentionally or accidentally, I don't know. Perhaps your friend in the city does. Do you know what that tune is, Mr. Smallweed?' He adds, after breaking off to whistle one, 
accompanied on the table with the empty pipe. "'Tune?' replied the old man. "'No, we never have tunes here.' "'That's the dead march in Saul. They bury soldiers to it, so it's the natural end of the subject. Now, if your pretty granddaughter—excuse me, miss—will condescend to take care of this pipe for two months, we shall save the cost of one next time. Good evening, Mr. Smallweed.' "'My dear friend,' the old man gives him both his hands. "'So you think your friend in the city will be hard upon me if I fall in a payment?' says the trooper, looking down upon him like a giant. "'My dear friend, I'm afraid he will,' returns the old man, looking up at him like a pygmy. Mr. George laughs, and with a glance at Mr. Smallweed, and a parting salutation to the scornful Judy, strides out of the parlour, clashing imaginary sabres and other metallic appurtenances, as he goes. "'You're a damned rogue,' says the old gentleman, making a hideous grimace at the door as he shuts it. "'But I'll lime you. You dog, I'll lime you.' After this amiable remark, his spirit soars into those enchanting regions of reflection which its education and pursuits have opened to it, and again he and Mrs. Smallweed while away the rosy hours, two unrelieved sentinels, forgotten, as aforesaid, by the black sergeant. While the twain are faithful to their post, Mr. George strides through the streets with a massive kind of swagger and a grave enough face. It is eight o'clock now, and the day is fast drawing in. He stops hard by Waterloo Bridge, and reads a play-bill, decides to go to Astley's Theatre. Being there, is much delighted with the horses and the feats of strength, looks at the weapons with a critical eye, disapproves of the combats, as giving evidences of unskilful swordsmanship, but is touched home by the sentiments. In the last scene, when the Emperor of Tartary gets up into a cart, and condescends to bless the united lovers by hovering over them with the Union Jack, his eyelashes are moistened with emotion. The theatre over, Mr. George comes across the water again, and makes his way to that curious region lying about the Haymarket and Leicester Square, which is a centre of attraction to indifferent foreign hotels and indifferent foreigners, racket-courts, fighting-men, swordsmen, foot-guards, old china, gaming-houses, exhibitions, and a large medley of shabbiness and shrinking out of sight. Penetrating to the heart of this region, he arrives by a court and a long whitewashed passage, at a great brick building, composed of bare walls, floors, roof-rafters, and skylights, on the front of which, if it can be said to have any front, is painted, George's Shooting Gallery, etc. Into George's Shooting Gallery, etc., he goes, and in it there are gaslights, partly turned off now, and two whitened targets for rifle-shooting, and archery accommodation, and fencing appliances, and all necessaries for the British art of boxing. None of these sports or exercises being pursued in George's shooting gallery to-night, which is so devoid of company, that a little grotesque man with a large head has it all to himself, and lies asleep upon the floor. The little man is dressed something like a gunsmith, in a green baize apron and cap, and his face and hands are dirty with gunpowder, and begrimed with the loading of guns. As he lies in the night before a glaring white target, the black upon him shines again. Not far off is the strong, rough, primitive table with a vice upon it, at which he has been working. 
He is a little man, with a face all crushed together, who appears from a certain blue and speckled appearance that one of his cheeks presents to have been blown up, in the way of business, at some odd time or times. "'Phil,' says the trooper, in a quiet voice. "'All right,' cries Phil, scrambling to his feet. "'Anything been doing?' <gasps> "'Flat as ever, so much swipes,' says Phil. Five dozen rifle and a dozen pistol. "'As to aim!' Phil gives a howl at the recollection. "'Shut up, shop, Phil.' As Phil moves about to execute this order, it appears that he is lame, though able to move very quickly. On the speckled side of his face he has no eyebrow, and on the other side he has a bushy black one, which want of uniformity gives him a very singular and rather sinister appearance. Everything seems to have happened to his hands that could possibly take place, consistently with the retention of all the fingers, for they are notched and seamed and crumpled all over. He appears to be very strong, and lifts heavy benches about, as if he had no idea what weight was. He has a curious way of limping round the gallery, with his shoulder against the wall, and tacking off at objects he wants to lay hold of, instead of going straight to them, which has left a smear all round the four walls, conventionally called Phil's Mark. This custodian of George's gallery, in George's absence, concludes his proceedings, when he has locked the great doors and turned out all the lights but one, which he leaves to glimmer, by dragging out from a wooden cabin in a corner two mattresses and bedding. These being drawn to opposite ends of the gallery, the trooper makes his own bed, and Phil makes his. "'Phil,' says the master, walking towards him without his coat and waistcoat, and looking more soldierly than ever in his braces. "'You were uh, found in a doorway, weren't you?' "'Gutter,' says Phil. "'Watchman tumbled over me.' "'Then—' vagabondizing came natural to you from the beginning as natural as possible says phil good night good night governor phil cannot even go straight to bed but finds it necessary to shoulder round two sides of the gallery and then tack off at his mattress the trooper after taking a turn or two in the rifle distance and looking up at the moon now shining through the skylights strides to his own mattress by a shorter route and goes to bed too. End of chapter 21「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.